People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning. Hello and welcome to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us again this Monday morning. We'll be here from 10 to 1 p.m. And we have a few guests lined up today, three of them in fact, but a reminder. For now, our text number is 2057, and any email feedback may please be sent at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. And now, Don, I think we should start, as usual, with our feedbacks that we've received. Yeah, why, why not? Seven days on, it's gone quickly again, as I said last week, and um, yep, Got a good show lined up, I hope, with some real authentic people coming up. But we've had authentic people writing into us. So, you know, good good job uh, for the people that are taking note and giving us some feedback. So this is from someone who had texted, Greenwash team, ours, and I'm assuming our dream, was called a quarter acre dream. And yeah. it has that gone. Well, it's still possible uh, and it should be possible again. But yes, uh, you do get the feeling that maybe the next generation does want to go up, not out. Uh, I don't know, uh, the quarter acre um, Pavlova paradise, I think it was called, was the uh, was the dream of my uh, young adulthood. So, yeah, let's mm. hope the, let's hope people that want that can still get it. Simon Head has written and and with some quite good analogies about how completely insignificant our uh, contribution as a country to warming is. And uh, yeah, I can't help but nod on. And thank you for your work, Simon. There's quite a few detailed calculations there, and it just makes it crystal clear. We are on a road to insanity here. Yeah, it's like a a pinhead on a rugby paddock sort of stuff, uh, sort of his analogy. you know, that's New Zealand's contribution to to warming. Uh, completely overstated the whole scenario. And good that people make these uh, comparisons. I've had another one today that came through to me. It was uh, New Zealand emissions totally for a year are the same as China's 
uh, China puts out in 30 a day and a half. So all that's uh, fine, but in the end, those of us that have studied this a long time know that this is all predicated on an agenda that's a bit a bit like quicksand. There's some feedback for Dr. Jock Allison's show from Mark. Great show team. Dr. Jock was awesome. If only more people would open their eyes and see what's happening. Thank you, Mark. And we, we thought Jock is great. He is the way he puts things. No one else certainly can. And he's been on this. You know, he's never veered away from the narrative about calling this nonsense out for what he is. And New Zealand farmers today, especially sheep farmers, as we went into detail in our interview, owe a debt to the man for his contributions. It's true. And he, he did, in terms of that sheep um, business, he did start the trend towards hybridization of sheep breeds that was quite standard. Uh, sure, we had breeds like Coopworths, which were sort of a cross between Border Leicester and Romney, but he brought in these other breeds like East Frisian and Texel, and they have hybridized uh, into our flock with different results, for, depending on what the farmer wants, whether it's increased milking ability, as in sheep's milk, or whether it's increased muscling for meat. So, yeah, he's been a um, a long-time stalwart for New Zealand agriculture, and, yeah, we love his input. A levy is another name for tax. Thanks, Bruce. It is. We just seem to be, you know, splitting hairs about what we are doing here, but it is ultimately all a tax and it all goes into the government coffers and is spent on stuff we don't really need or care for. And yet the essentials we need, teaching, hospitals, nurses, doctors, roads, they could just go a begging for funds. Yeah. And of course, in farming parlance, our levy is often paid to our um, industry good bodies and sometimes they just Mm, don't spend it uh, the way that most, well, a lot of farmers want it. And in fact, yeah, we've talked about it a lot. It, it appeared that um, they were almost doing the dirty work for the government on taxing animals for their emissions. Um, let's hope all that can be put to bed very soon and dismissed to the dustbin, consigned to the dustbin. <laughs> Once and forevermore. Uh, Glenbrook Growing Electric seems like they've forgotten you can't make steel without coal, or have they? I thank you for that. And I'm glad someone else is seeing exactly what's happening here. So for listeners, Glenbrook is a steel mill. And they are, the government is saying in this budget bonanza that certain sectors have had, in what is the country's largest ever initiative to reduce carbon emissions, the government is partnering with New Zealand Steel to install a clean electric arc furnace at the Glenbrook Steel Mill in South Auckland. The cost of the project? $300 million. How much are you and I and the rest of the country stomping up? $140 million. It is so easy to be generous with other people's money, isn't it? And they say it's going to reduce the emissions profile of New Zealand by 1%. So if you extrapolate that, multiply it out by 100, and you know the cost, uh, if you want to do all the game in town about re reducing emissions. And of course, uh, this question says, you've, have they forgotten you can't make steel without coal? The way I read it, this is all about recycling steel. Um, so it's not making it, it's recycling it. Uh, slightly different, but I 
I stand to be corrected on that. But regardless, uh, I think New Zealand Steel is owned by Blue Scope in Australia. I could be wrong on that too. Uh, and of course, in Australia, burning coal is no problem to make steel. So virtuous mm. to the end Absolutely. is New Zealand. Bleeding hearts. And <laughs> uh, there's no end to their largest. Larry has written in. Good morning, Josh Preet and Don. As someone from the ag sectors, you will appreciate that the vegetable production on an industrial scale is far from green. It involves vast monocultures, copious amounts of fertilizers based on petrochemicals. Compare this to pastoral grazing and you'll see yet another lie. Larry. Well, I've seen tulips grown on part of the farm we were working on before this one. And yep. They those pretty pretty looking tulips certainly take some inputs there. Uh, yeah, it's easy. I mean, I, there's a bit of stuff under the radar, and good on them for keeping under the radar because um, the visibility of uh, animal agriculture just means we're we're targeted more. Um, I'm aware of the inputs that are required to, you know, have vast quantities of of vegetables grown too, and uh, I think it would open some people's eyes if they knew the volumes of of fertilizers required but nothing if you if you want to grow something it's a figment of your imagination if you think you can grow something without replacing what you take out so uh uh you know i know we have this argument about regen and and organic but generally if you want yield you have got to um in my understanding of it certainly feed the soils and replace what you take out in the product. And now to some brickbats, Don. Uh, oh. There's this one more book here there. Uh, Linda, she says she's written previously also. Good morning, love your show, and look forward to it every yeah. week. Thank you for taking yeah, the time, nice. Linda. No, oh, there's one, there's mm-hmm. one here, though, before the brickbat that says, uh, hi, Jasper, Eden, Don, love your work. The entire population of the world would fit into the state of Texas. So I think you said there's 700,000 square kilometers in Texas, and I think that extrapolates out to, X. I did the numbers, so many billion um, square meters, and I think they're right. At about a square meter each, everybody could fit in Texas. I've got another analogy that I've always worked on, that um, they could all fit on Stewart Island if you made this sort of in about half a square meter, perhaps, or slightly less. So it's interesting how twice tonight we've uh, played with numbers on on emissions and and the population of the world where they might all fit. When we're not as densely, sort of as tightly uh, fitting on the planet as people might otherwise think. I know. Uh, so the brickbat Mark uh, has written, and while I agree. With the general discussion topics uh, this morning on your show, I take offense at you and Don Nicholson for making fun of vegetarians and vegetarian diets. The reason for adopting a vegan vegetarian diet is not just against so-called climate change. It's also an action against animal cruelty, killing, and also for health reasons, which you both think is seem to think is rubbish, quoting beer grills. I gave up consuming all animal products 17 years ago. And my health has never been better. I'm now 67, healthier than my 38-year-old son who consumes meal every day. You claim that vegetarian food takes more resources uh, than producing meat needs evidence. I challenge you to provide this. Well, 
we could we can provide anything you want really i mean people make whatever they want out of data i couldn't care uh what people eat uh relatively it's uh you know it's important that citizens do whatever they see fit to keep their their health the way they want it to be uh and so good on them for uh wanting to be uh a vegan he says I... his health is health has never been better so well, that's a great ad, you know, great outcome. Well, you know, it is horses for courses and all of that. I should say, Mark, that I have been a vegetarian for close to 12 years of my life. But then in India, it was no big deal. That country is uh, 75% if you see vegetarian. But uh, I actually had adverse effects and I switched to, uh, you know, back to having meat. But who's to say what is right? I had in school, we had a yoga teacher and that gentleman, I believe my mom was telling me is close to 100 now, fit as a fiddle and has never consumed meat. So, you know, there goes. But I think what uh, we were talking about is monoculture, regardless of what you're doing. The fact does remain that in many places when this argument is used, it is used to push back against animal farming, against livestock farming. And that's the issue. I I think I, we, we did uh, laugh about beer grills there, but I don't think it was meant uh, in any other sense towards, you know, telling people what diet they should follow. Right, look, no. you've got to have a sense of humour about all this, and uh, um, I think that's how we present it. But you know, I'm sorry if um, this person has taken offence. Uh, there's lots of people who will take offence at what we say over time, and it's just the way of the world. Yep. Yeah. Right. Now, last week, this is just to jog memories for listeners who might not have listened to all the, the entire segment, and God knows three hours is long enough, so I don't blame you. Dawn and I had uh, gone into length about this document about net zero in the UK. It was put out by an organization called UK Fires, which was a five-year research program funded to the tune of five million pounds through a government and private industry consortium. And it stands for placing resource efficiency at the heart of UK's industrial strategy, they say. So we went through their document, the document of net zero, and we saw what exactly the lifestyle changes they expected uh, the British people to make. And do keep in mind that document was from 2018. So I don't know how far they've progressed, but the handy-dandy, brightly colored graphic on ukfires.org's main page talks about flying by 2029, all airports except Heathrow, Glasgow, and Belfast close, with only transfers by rail. 2030, all remaining airports close beyond 2050. So there's a period from 2049 onwards where there'll be no flying. And they spoke about that in the document. And then well after 2050, they say electric planes will take to the sky. <laughs> hmm. um, and as I said last week, uh, I hope to make it to 2050. Um, it's going to be a fine thing if I get there. But anyway, uh, and, and, I, and we have often talked about how we are big on understanding how things evolve. And, you know, the Elon Musks of this world could have us doing stuff that seems a little uh, little futuristic at the moment. Uh, 
batteries and electric planes. I'm just not quite sure how that weight to, yeah, I'm, I'm just not sure how that all works out. I know that they're existing right now and think it's in Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but the oh, scale, the scale is the issue. And uh, look, I know, and I know we talked last week about how batteries are changing from potentially lithium to silica, silicon as their um, componentry. And, and, and apparently they're going to be more energy dense, I think is the term. And so, therefore, they will hold a hold a bigger charge for and and for longer. So, look, that stuff will evolve. I and and you know, uh, while we pick on electrification quite a bit, uh, I've been in the industry, and I'm really positive about uh, electrifying things. It's it's it is a really clean and uh, nice, simple way to operate. But we don't need the privilege of uh, legislation getting ahead of the market uh, need, and that's where I sit. We just we're actually playing and meddling in the marketplace, and it never ends well. It doesn't. That document, and I promise you, this is the last we'll speak of it today because we went into it in detail last week. It spoke about the fact that by 2029 in UK, beef and lamb's consumption will drop 50 percent. And between 2030 and 2059, beef and lamb will be phased out along with all imports of meat. I hope New Zealand knows that, that there's that market that's going. You know, we don't count on the British supermarkets stocking our lamb anymore, Don. Well, we've just got a free trade agreement with the UK, and I think it talks about access uh, around meat. So. <laughs> so so, whatever. So are these two parties not talking to each other? UK Fires says... 50% oh. drop by 2029 and after that phasing out and we are talking of free trade agreements to push our meat there well Jasper, as you have taught me you have to go back to um even 50 years ago to see the beginnings and you could probably go back beyond that uh as we've talked about with the the marxist agendas of gramsci and co but when you uh, put up documents to me that really clearly show and and I have to say, listeners, Jaspreet is the Jasper, is the ultimate super sleuth. She goes back and delves in deep, and it's pretty uh, telling the stuff that comes out. And the stuff that we're talking about now about UK fires, it has its tentacles. Its its web goes right away back to at least the seventies, if not the sixties. Uh, and and you know, so so these people never stop. You'd think when you get told, no, that's not happening. Uh, we're going to have free trade with New Zealand. We're going to do, um, we're going to have beef and we're going to have lamb and everything's going to be good. You'd think they'd go away and say, okay, that door's closed. But these people just don't stop. They keep coming back and slowly it creeps in and the, the, the feelings uh, sort of get into the psyche of a nation and all of a sudden things happen. Hence why we've got this electrification push under climate change. I mean, none of, not one climate model, not one tipping point has ever been, has ever come to pass. And yet we sell, we've sold ourselves into all this noise. It's just, it's just how it happens. People get slowly indoctrinated by the noise. And here we are, UK fires is talking about stuff that if they keep talking about it, it could happen. Mm-hmm. Mm. So it's our job to stop them talking about it. And it's our job, I think, Don, to keep giving these history, mm. you know, reminders. I won't call them lessons. Mm. 
that's a term my children use as mom giving homeschool lessons today but we we need to keep talking about history and the fact that none of this is new if only we care to look it's all been there now i'd say it was uh nearly a month back when don and i looked at the auckland council's website and we saw that they were talking about the club of rome and the auckland council's climate page refers to you know business strategies and how they're going to ensure a sustainable auckland and the i'm quoting the auckland council website it said that the globally recognized club of rome found that countries from france to finland can simultaneously grow jobs and reduce emissions so at that time last month don and i had gone to the club of rome's website which auckland council's webpage very conveniently directed us to and we looked at club of rome and a particular book then the first global revolution and they spoke in this the globalists had written that in searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite we came up with the idea that pollution the threat of global warming water shortages famine and the like would fit their bill in their totality these phenomena constitute a common threat and and that is what we have already warned readers about and the real enemy they said that actually is humanity itself so this is club of rome 50 years ago don and i spoke about it a month ago but this week you know you keep looking at these things again and again there came an article on this site i refer very often to the zero hedge and zerohedge.com they spoke about how the club of rome is pushing climate hysteria again well we know it they've been doing this for 50 years that's that's what they make their money out of but it referred to older older documents one of those being the hard road to the world order shall we go there don new world order conspiracy theorists shall we i think we should <laughs> so the hard road to the world order it is uh, this paper penned by uh, this gentleman richard gardner was under the clinton administration a uh, united nations ambassador to italy amongst other countries and he penned this i don't don't even know what i should call this this opinion piece in april 1974 nearly 50 years ago called the hard road to the world order and you know don and i we've often spoken about sovereignty and we seem to be losing that we seem to be d- dictated by globalist powers offshore authorities who have not been duly elected and so one of those people richard gardner wrote in this the hard road to the world order that the house of the world order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than top down it will look like a great booming buzzing confusion but it will end national sovereignty eroding it piece by piece and it will accomplish much more than the old fashioned frontal assault of course some of these specialized arrangements would be brought into an appropriate relationship with the central institutions of the united nations system but yeah so national sovereignty has always been a bugbear of these people just become yeah. good global citizens and that's uh what's happened all all around us and we haven't even noted it i mean we still vote in national elections and we think we've um 
got the politicians of the day looking out for national sovereignty. Uh, but it appears uh, when you look into the way the rules and regulations roll out in New Zealand, mm. there is an element of ceding um, or, or accepting that there is a greater power, a globalist power in in the mix. And this guy, Strobe Talbot, who was the um, uh, in the Clinton administration Deputy Secretary of State, said that nationhood as we know it will be obsolete. All states will recognize a single global authority. I mean, nothing's more plainer than that. Uh, and you've just highlighted some other bits of similar vein. It's all there. So why don't we talk about it in New Zealand? Why, and any of country that have, have got these same sort of uh, influences coming down the pipeline at them, we just don't talk about it. And it's all around us. And, uh, you know, in the 70s when I was a teenager, yeah, you know, I would have considered anyone that talked about a, a new world order or, or a one world government a crazy. And I sort of thought, thought that right up until about 15 years ago. Oh, there's nothing to see here. Well, well it's all listen, around us. It's all around us. Media, it is still a conspiracy. Hmm. It is, they still don't want to talk about it. Mainstream media, at least, will not. So yep. the, this document, the hard road to the world order, it says that. In 1974, it says that the hopeful aspect of the present situation is that even as nations resist appeals for the world government and surrender of sovereignty, technological, economic, and political interests are forcing them to establish more and more far-reaching arrangements to manage their mutual interdependence, globalism, free trade. And, you know, there is this both sides. There is both sides to the, there's a good, there's a bad. But ceding sovereignty was never a part of the deal, was it? Well, it's not the way I read it. And, uh, uh, you know, who in New Zealand's history has has done that? Uh, well, it appears every politician, since I can recall, has in some way been party to this. They must have known if they did their homework. So the bureau, either they or the bureaucrats that um, advise them have been keeping the lid on it. Now, you know, it doesn't make me feel great because I trusted a lot of the people that I was around when I was in the, in the big smoke of Wellington. But it is no wonder how uh, some of them reacted when I've seen them out of Wellington. And I'll never forget one who was uh, from Enby. And in a function, he pointedly turned to me and said, and by the way, I do believe in man-made global warming and looked away. Uh, he was scowling at me. I mean, that was that was about eight years after I left Wellington. I was still getting the derision from, from a bureaucrat. I mean, these people know what's going on, and it's all ingratiating them at your and my and our family's expense. And that's the problem. At the expense of our children's futures, yes. At the expense of what the next generation for you, grandchildren, for me, children at this stage, what what their lives will be like. So I'll, I'll again go back to the document, the hard road to the world order. And in case anyone wants a copy, please email me at uh, inbox at the rate reality check radio. I know I had to go to a bit of pains and create some uh, logins to get this from an international university library. I'll be very, very happy to email this to you. Uh, the fourth point, he says, 
Richard Gardner, the Clinton administration diplomat, the next few years, and he said this in 1974, would see a continued strengthening of the new global and regional agencies charged with protecting the world's environment in italics. In addition to comprehensive monitoring of the Earth's air, water, soil, and effective pollutants on human health, we can look forward to new procedures to implement the principle of state responsibility for actions that have transnational consequences, probably some kind of international environmental impact statement. And at the same time, international agencies will be given broader powers to promulgate and revise standards limiting air and water pollution will enter the IPCC, enter the United Nations, enter the World Economic Forum, enter the Paris Accord, and God knows what else. Well, there was the Kyoto Protocol. There was a whole lot of... Um, Montreal. Um, yeah, a whole lot of things before that. And of course, and if you look in New Zealand, uh, 1991, the RMA came into being, took a long time to get into the national sort of... Yeah, to, to merge into the national... Um, uh, sort of platform, but when it did, the precautionary principle became very obvious. So it's all about uh, can't do versus can do. And, and, you know, then, of course, we got the Kyoto Protocol and we understood how the IPCC was playing its game. And uh, we'll talk about this perhaps in another show, how we've come to realise how uh, how corrupted uh the first few, well, one of the first reports were try, and in fact, it was the authors, the drafting of one of those reports in 1995, a key element of it, chapter eight, was altered after the scientists that had drafted it and presented it to the IPCC. It was altered in its final um, print uh, without the knowledge of the authors. That shows you how deep this corruption really is and has been and is still going on uh, when it comes to these reports. They're, they're um, light with the truth, you might say. Very, very light with the truth. Uh, 1974, they're talking about the fact that the law of the sea conference and beyond, there might be several years of very difficult negotiations, but they will eventually emerge anew international regime governing the world's oceans. They speak then of the fact that there will be, the world will move ahead and there will be a truly multilateral set of negotiations designed to limit conventional weapons. It seems inevitable that the United Nations and some regional bodies will be given new responsibilities for disarmament, including means of verification and enforcement. Well, you know more about this side of it than I do, Jasper. Um, but it's all written here. Everything. I'll, I'll just end with one last one, which I agree with, actually. It's, it's, but the it's only like a prescription, dis- isn't it? It's like <laughs> a prescription points. from the doctor, isn't it? <laughs> Ten points to the New World Order, edition 1974. Mm. And the sixth point there, they talk about in 1974, we need to, a, a world conference has been scheduled to deal with the long-neglected problem of assuring sufficient food supplies for rapidly growing population. Reserves of crop and arable land are dwindling, crop failures, disappointing harvests. There is mounting concern about world food security. 
not don't think it happened. <laughs> Nothing to see here. I mean, uh, on all measures, I think uh, the population of the world has expanded massively since then, of course. It's not hard to measure that. Uh, and there's still enough food and resources in the world. So, yep, they were. The precautionary principle was well and truly being talked about then. Yeah, completely. And, and funnily enough, when I was a kid, I feared that sort of stuff. The world was overpopulated. I remember the statistic was two children being born every second or something, and that was in the 60s. I remember that stat. I never in my uh, in my brain at that that time thought about people dying because <laughs> you don't think of that when you're a kid. But I actually feared that the world just couldn't have all these people. And I lived in Invercargill, for goodness sake. Um, so it's easy to see how uh, the children of today have got eco-anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just shouldn't have, mind you, but uh, it's our job to make sure they that's lessened. Uh, but, you know, it's been around for years. If I had the, uh, that sort of anxiety, I can't blame children of today having anxiety because yep. certainly the information is a lot more available than it was in my era. But that's the thing that I picked up and sort of had in my head. Of course, there was Muro testing uh, for uh, yeah, atomic bomb type stuff. Uh, so um, that I had a school teacher that put the fear of the future in me that um, I was not going to come to school one day because I'd fry in my bed sort of thing. So, yeah, those. And so you understand how that anxiety was in his age group at the time, he probably was, I'm guessing, around 30 years of age. He was anxious. So all these things that make us anxious do have an effect. Uh, it's up to us who are a bit, yeah, who research this stuff and think about it to hopefully allay the fears that are put out there. Yeah. There is, you know, this is one document. Another one that I will refer to slightly is uh, this article that's still found on the website of the Time magazine, again from 1992. I was a teenager then. America Abroad, The Birth of a Global Nation by Strobe Talbot. He was at one time the U.S. uh, Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. And he wrote in 1992 that, in fact, I'll bet that within the next 100 years, and he says in brackets, I'm giving the world time for setbacks and myself time to be out of the betting game in case I lose this one. But I'm betting that in the next hundred years, nationhood as we know it will be obsolete. All states will recognize a single global authority. A phrase briefly fashionable in the mid 20th century, citizens of the world will have assumed real meaning by the end of the 21st. Yeah, well, he, he wrote that in 1992. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not sure if he's still around, but uh, yeah, he's posited his ideas and that's what people of, of this ilk did. They definitely wrote their feelings down and made it clear for all that they had an agenda mm. and slowly over time, people would buy into it and that's what's happened. Yeah, and even more, we... we he posited his idea, but his idea is now coming to fruition. And I'm referring to the New Zealand school curriculum. And there's this uh, an NGO, I'd call it, called the Growing Global Citizenship in Aotearoa. Their website is 
teach a pack teach a p s a asia pacific i think teach a pack.nz and they say we are uh, welcome to glo- growing global citizenship education in aotearoa we are designed here to support teachers to inspire new and grow you know global citizenship education in their classrooms schools and kura proudly proudly hosted by the centers of asia pacific excellence and uh, they were established by the new zealand government to help improve new zealanders understanding of and engagement with latin america north asia southeast asia and other things these are delivered by a consortium of four universities auckland victoria waikato and otago and i am looking through their website and they say their role is to encourage young people to think critically of the challenges facing the world today and respond in a uh, ways that creates an equitable inclusive and there's that word again don sustainable future it requires a holistic and interwoven approach and yeah so this is not just in a piece of paper this sort of ideology and i have not gone into the details here but i've read enough you know a cursory glance has shown me more than enough of what this is going on about because there is it's not just happening in new zealand you look at school boards across the west and this sort of global citizenship education is happening everywhere and you look at uh, possibly it might be worth com- contrasting that with the curriculum that a chinese student would be learning which would be a sense of their own history and pride and i doubt they are learning climate hysteria gender ideology and global citizenship uh, i think you're 99.99% should, um right on that uh i even that 0.001 element of doubt on of his is is thin yeah look it's it's weird how we've uh, let this get into um the institutions the way we have but that's what they said they would do uh they would be using the long march the concept called the long march through the institutions and it doesn't matter how you cut the cake it's all there and you know as a as a farmer uh working for 40 years with your head down and bum up so to speak um you just don't think about the stuff and it's only when people like you come and come along uh, Jaspreet that we start to unbundle it and and see it for what it is and they talk about putting uh, a new lens over it well you've got new lens um going over it that's for sure uh it's why have we been so blind i don't know i squarely put the blame on my father and my brother two people who served under the united nations in somalia dad in 92 and my brother's battalion was rotated about 2005 to congo that when two generations in your families are uh, dispatched by the government that right your t- your t- it's your turn need to be rotated into the un army you start reading up about this stuff especially when you know neither somalia nor congo was a walk in the park that lost seven men in an ambush in somalia my brother had some close shaves in congo and this is what i do as i often told you don i don't have a life <laughs> i rather well, be and, and we've been too comfortable in uh in our life uh we've never watched the stuff uh evolving around us i do recall i have a had a near neighbor it's only come to me tonight um that he he was putting the stuff at 
at me probably 20 years ago. He was very well read and I couldn't understand a word he was sort of saying, but it's all come back to me that he was alerting me to this then. Uh, but it was the way he presented it probably didn't quite sort of hit the mark as it hits now. Uh, now that we've got the cold, hard, lighter day of sort of semi-retirement, you actually start seeing this stuff and feeling it and, and understanding it. And of course, there will be people that I used to work with, um, if they're listening to this, will say, oh, Don's just lost it. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm sorry, I do have a, an element of common sense about me and uh, something's not right here. No, something, something is not right. Going onto the teacher pack, the NZ website, they talk about what does it mean to be a global citizen? So what uh, they'll be teaching children. And sure enough, it begins with global citizens have a deep commitment to social justice to create a sustainable and equitable world. They are inclusive, relational, deeply respectful and value diversity curious about the equality of connections between people, cultures, and spaces, and collaboratively create a better planet for our shared humanity. And the examples that are given, you know, uh, this uh, picture books that are recommended. So there is Pink Tiara Cookies for Three, where the three cookies are resolution, jealousy, inclusion. Then there's Chocolate Milk, celebrating diversity with empathy. There's this book by Joanna Ho that's recommended reading. It's called Eyes That Kiss in the Corners. A young Asian girl notices that her eyes look different from her peers. Her eyes kiss the corner and glow like warm tea, crinkle into crescent moons. There must be more than that. Another book, a reminder that we have the power to choose our own mindsets. I can see this, Don. It is... You know, I think jaded eyes or call them cynical. I can see exactly what's going on in the recommended mm. reading section here. Mm. It's influential stuff, isn't it? Very influential stuff. Very influential stuff. At the time when our school are struggling for teachers, at the time when the kids are skipping school, there is the truancy, I believe, is now at rates not seen before this. The NCA level achievements that they have, even despite watered-down standards, kids are not meeting what they should. They, I believe there was a recent report that said a 14- to a 16-year-old New Zealand teenager is anything between two to three years behind their peer group in Singapore, Korea, China. This is what we think is important. Yes, and yes, in terms of reading and... Was it just reading or what was it in? It was I remember mathematics. Mathematics. Reading. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's a sad indictment uh, on us, really. And, of course, all we ever hear is we need more money. We need more money. Uh, it'll fix everything. Well, as I've said before, if you throw more money at stuff, why doesn't it fix things? Why Why are those stats getting worse? Mm. Doesn't make yeah. sense. No, uh, but I think, Don, perhaps we should go into a good news story for now. <laughs> And uh, uh, listeners, our text number, just to remind us, 2057. And email is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. You were listening to Just Breathe and Dawn. And shortly, we will be joined by a guest, Bernadette Hunt. She's a Southland farmer. She is uh, 
someone who's done a whole lot of community work, and she's someone who had my utter respect when a year ago, at the height of the COVID mandates, despite her uh, you know, profile in the community, she took a very public stance, made a video and about what she thought the whole COVID fiasco that was happening and the mandates and vaccine passes, she left us in no doubt about where she stood. And I thought that was very brave, very admirable, sticking your ne- neck out like that. So give us a minute and we'll be back soon with Bernard Tant. Thank you for joining us this morning on Greenwashed. Jaspreet Bhopparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Uh, today we have a real farmer in the room, a real um, Southlander now, we like to call her. Uh, she's been to London and back. Uh, there's plenty of things in her um, her resume. Uh, she calls herself a food producer, a community doer, and a mum. She started life as a dairy farmer's daughter in Danny Verk. Uh, shifted to Catty Catty to being a kiwi fruit farmer with her family, and then the world was a oyster. So, welcome Bernadette Hunt. You've got a uh, very long resume, including uh, winning a primary industry leadership award. So, yeah, you've done a lot in your short time on Earth, um, based on my time on Earth. So, good job. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Can you fill in the gaps? There's a lot there. You're even into sport in a big way. That's a new thing that I didn't realise, rowing. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah. No. There has been all sorts. So yeah, you've the the my childhood. You've kind of summed up well. Um, dairy farming and then kiwi fruit orcharding. Um, dad or dad was a shepherd actually originally, and always ran some sheep and some beef as well on the spare blocks on the kiwi fruit orchard. And I loved also getting across the road to the neighbour's dairy farm and rearing a pet calf each year uh, that they kindly let me have and doing the school calf shows and stuff. So very much a rural upbringing. Um, but But, you know, in the midst of all of that, parents, you know, like, you know, through the 80s, you know, I had my uh, young childhood through the 80s, so pretty tough times for my parents, so saw, wasn't really fully aware of it, but with hindsight, I can, I have some, you know, a bit of awareness of how tough things were, I guess, and we never had uh, had money to splash around, but we never wanted for any thing either um and then I left school and moved to Auckland uh was talked out of doing teaching by guidance counsellors at school ironically um and so I went and did a computing pro uh course and a business computing course worked in Auckland for a couple of years actually for TVNZ in administrative roles and then uh did my OE well started my OE by spending four years living in Sydney uh which is where I started rowing and um gained a real love for that sport and after four years there working in various IT related roles, moved to London and well, it was really a, an 18 month OE um, and spent a year of that living in London, but traveling around Europe and stuff while I was there too. Again, working in IT related roles um, and rowing. Uh, and I got to compete at uh, the British National Champs and at Women's Henley Regatta. So some pretty special times there. And rowing was a great way to get to know people and have a bit of a social life as as well. So loved my time there. But always um, missed New Zealand and didn't, ultimately I came back to New Zealand because I didn't want to spend my life in corporate world. I had a great career in front of me if I'd wanted it, earning loads of money, um, all of that kind of stuff. But I 
I didn't see myself as a city girl long term. So I um, always wanted to return to New Zealand, came back to really get my teeth into competitive rowing. Um, but that wasn't to be. So I trained out of, I moved to Cambridge, um, worked for a fern nursery actually, selling ferns wholesale to garden centres and supermarkets and all sorts. And, uh, but that was kind of around my rowing where I trained three times a day, six or seven days a week, um, you know, re, you know, kind of re, training and rowing at the elite level. Uh, but my body just wasn't up to it in the end. Um, there's a reason why rowers generally are, are built, you know, very broadly. Uh, my, my rowing training, my muscles got too strong for my bones. <laughs> basically and I got stress fractures in my ribs and um you know it just kind of wasn't to be for me but I feel like I gave it everything I could saw how far I could go with it couldn't quite go to the top but um yeah um and then ultimately kind of gave that away and and went decided to go back to teaching actually so I became an adult student at Waikato University where I trained to become a teacher because I'd decided by then that I wanted to live my life in rural New Zealand um and I that was a, a job that I could have in any rural town, you know, every rural town needs teachers. So I, you know, it was something I'd always wanted to do. So I went, I, I went back and did that as an adult student. Um, and during nearly, nearly at the end of the story-ish, <laughs> during that time, met my now husband and um, we, he's originally from England, but had come out here for farming. We decided that we wanted to go farming together, uh, found a farm in Southland that we loved and moved down here and I started my teaching career down here and we settled down here on the farm we're still on now and that was about 17 years ago. Wow and what a resume um, and that just <laughs> shows show. you well it just shows you uh, the commitments you've made and everything you've done and why you're a very good advocate for the farming industry now. Uh, it was a bit of a quaint story I read too online that you um, and your husband sort of used to and when you were a teacher, you used to go out and sit on the tractor with him while he was chopping silage or something. I, I see that happening more and more these days where uh, people come out in the evening and work with contractors. So good job. Now, you're, you're farming um, perhaps you would say northwest of Gore. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's pretty much due north of Gore, actually. Yeah, sort of near Waikaka. Right. And what do you farm on on that property? So we farm, we're sheep and beef traders. So we don't have uh, breeding breeding herds or flocks. Uh, so we're traders and we also grow a lot of arable crops. So about a third of our farmland is an arable crop. So uh, wheat, barley, oats. We also grow peas and beans, a uh, bit of grass seed this year as well. And we run a small ag contracting business as well. Oh, and, and there's a little bit of dairy grazing in the mix as well. Uh, so yeah, pretty versatile. And basically, you know, we, we bought our farm. It's not a family inherited farm or anything like that. We bought it with a huge amount of debt just before the global recession when banks were still throwing money at farmers. <laughs> uh, we would never have been able to buy it under the, under the equity ratio we had at the time. Um, so we had to create this business that brought in income at all times of the year. Uh, so we created this amazing machine that brought in income at all different times of the year, but it also means there's not a lot of downtime. Um, but that's that's how we've how we've kind of built our business is sheer hard work, uh, very diverse. We we have our eggs in lots of baskets because we couldn't afford to have a failure in a year. We just weren't in a position we could where we could have carried that. So eggs in lots of different baskets, so that if um, one was down, chances are another was up, and we could always ride out the storms. Yeah, and so listeners. This is why we have um, Bernadette on. Uh, from the background to where she is today, 
we want uh, someone to talk about the real uh, issues that are happening inside the, the farm gate. Uh, effectively, it's easy for uh, us all to have a grizzle and a groan about stuff, but um, the hunts have come from, as she said, as Bernadette says, from a background of um, having no family money in the business. So they got into, biz into this business from ground zero. A lot of people would say that's impossible. Well, it isn't, and the hunts are... Um, uh, living proof of that. So, Bernadette, what would you say is the hardest part about surviving in the farming systems that we operate and governance of today? What What is the big issues? I mean, if you're giving a state of the nation speech today, what would it sound like? Yeah, so look, if, if, if it was only about what's inside the farm gate, then farming is, is amazing and we we love it and the last season is a classic example of that if we were only having to to worry about what was in our control or, or even you know there's always some things out of our control in farming but if we only had to worry about what was inside the farm gate then then life would be great we would be absolutely loving our life problem is that's not how it works and it feels like at every turn there's somebody wanting to take a chunk out of us or a crack out of us and um make it harder and I've I don't know any other industry where people where it feels like everybody else feels like or everybody else is accusing us of um of a being greedy b being environmental vandals c being animal haters like I don't know a single farmer out there that wakes up in the morning and goes today I'm going to go and wreck my farm and be cruel to my animals but it feels like that's what the world thinks about us and that's really really hard isn't it? I, I often think being, I think dairy farming sometimes gets strung out more, though, yeah, we often find out here where we are in Western Southland, not far from you guys, there is issues on every front, be it weather, be it staffing, be it the cost of, you know, input and all of that that's gone up. And every single day, farming is hung out to dry. In fact, if it, if it was any other industry, this would actually be a case of, you know, you'd have people in an uproar, but somehow it seems to be open season for farmers, especially now. Yeah, and I think there's there's a perception out there that farmers are loaded. And so there's a yeah. bit of a tall poppy thing goes on, I think. I think that's some of it. Um, and people just don't understand that everything we have is put into our farm. I mean, when we bought our farm... Every last dollar went into buying it um, with massive amounts of debt to the point where my husband had quite a nice car, which we sold to buy an old dunger car <laughs> so that we could buy a trailer that we could cut calves with so that we could rear calves. And that was part of our income strategy for the season. I, I, you know, and I would be out there, you know, when our kids were babies, I remember putting my youngest one in a backpack and going out to feed 350 calves um, in a morning. And we're not, you know, we're not dairy farmers. So we did calf rearing as a way to, to try and get ahead and my daughter would would have her sleeps sitting like I'd take the backpack off my back once she was asleep and I'd sit it on the on the ground and she would be asleep in the calf pen next to me while I fed calves you know it was hard work I was always exhausted but that's the life we chose I wouldn't change it for anything and now the kids are older and um showing calves at competitions and um 
you know, my youngest daughter got home from school just before and she was she was straight out to play with the pet goats and the pet calves and the paddock in front of the house. It's the life we wanted It's and it's still the life we want. Um, but yeah, in terms of state of the nation, you know, look, life inside the farm gate as a farmer is fabulous. Uh, it's just um, hard to take sometimes, A, the negativity that's thrown us and B, this expectation that we can just shell out money for a farm plan or a resource consent or a... Um, I don't know, the latest box ticking exercise <laughs> and, and it's no big deal. People just seem to go, oh yeah, farm, that, that's only going to cost $2,000 for a farmer and that's only going to cost $5,000 and they'll be right. Would you trip over $2,000 in the street and walk past it? <laughs> we work hard for it just like everyone else does. And that's, that's the challenge at the moment. The national pastime is how to farm the farmer. Um, and there's plenty doing it and they take these increments unearned as a colleague used to say in fact a former president of fed farmers south and a couple before me he gave me that term unearned increments and i used to think oh that sounds a bit grubby <laughs> but anyway uh using the word increment but um when i realized what he meant um uh it's it was there then it's there today it's just it appears and i think you're endorsing this um bernadette that it's out of balance the you know the redistribution through the regulatory machine into the hands of uh administrators and busybodies has just got out of balance uh we know there's some of them are going to always be there but you're fine it's it's intriguing isn't it i think same problems different day uh it's just these seem to be on steroids at the moment so you have had an advocacy uh, role around your community as well, uh, in, in, including fed farmers, but there's some other um, roles you've had, like um, the Kids Hub project and the fundraising for that. It sounds like you put with some others, perhaps I didn't read the entire document, um, a lot of effort into fundraising and you raised a lot of money for that that concept. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when my eldest daughter was born, um, I did, as many people do, antenatal classes through the local parent centre. My husband and I attended those. And once she was born, I, I re remained being a member of the parent centre and would attend music sessions with my little baby and um, that kind of stuff. And, it, you know, they run a whole lot of uh, parent education stuff. And I got really involved in that organisation. I liked what it stood for, um, which fundamentally was, was about... Um, originally Parent Centre was formed on giving women the right to have a say in aspects of their uh, pregnancy and childbirth. It was where the midwifery kind of system was almost found, not not quite founded in New Zealand, but the ability for women to choose, that you know, if they want to give birth at home or if they want to give birth in a hospital or if they want to have an epidural or not, those kinds of things, you know, and that's what it was founded on and I really liked those values and it had evolved into education of parents. So I got heavily involved in that organisation to cut a long story short, late, a few years later, I was president, and it was, and I was friends with the president of the local play centre as, oh no, the local toy library as well, and she was friends, friends with the president of the local play centre. All three organisations were looking for a home, um, and all three organisations effectively served different served different needs to the same group of people, parents of um, young young children, but we all needed a home, so we we set about going. Well, actually, it would make a lot of sense for us all to be housed in the same in the same building, save some overheads, save some fundraising, all of that kind of stuff. 
So we looked around and there was no suitable location. Uh, so we spoke to the local council and we were like, well, you know, is there a building that exists that we could use? And there wasn't. So we were like, oh, well, how hard can it be? Should we look about building one? Would the council give us, you know, lend us some land or lease us some land to build on? So um, that's where it all began. <laughs> and um, the project grew and so we decided to build um, a building that would house all three of us. And then from there, it became apparent that we were missing an opportunity if all we did was house those three organisations. There was a lot of other facilities and, and services being provided to those same people that if we could house all of that in one space, what an amazing community asset. So that sounded quite good. So we kind of got on with that. And then the next thing became, how do you get people in the door that aren't already attracted to those organisations? Because those organisations attract kind of, um, or traditionally attracted white middle class I guess and there was a whole bunch of people that arguably needed the services more that struggled to get or struggled to take that step through the door so that was where the idea of the adjacent playground came in that if if, if people want to come to this great playground and they see what's going on in the kids hub um, then the kids might go oh can we go play in there too and they get a foot in the door and see that it's not such a scary place so yeah eventually that's that's what we built and I can't, can't remember the total off the top of my head I think it was a Oh, I can't remember. I think it was a $1.7 million project in total, um, which we opened the doors of the Kids Hub itself, which was, was I think was about $1.4 million uh, in 18 months, and then set about fundraising for the rest of the playground um, in the period of time after that. Uh, and it was basically three of us drove the project, and then we had a committee as well, um, ran massive fundraisers every single month for about 18 months. It was a huge effort, but an incredibly rewarding thing to be involved in. Yeah, well, and and you know, listening uh, to you, uh, you can see why you are considered a community leader. And this show, we actually talk about a lot of uh, how a lot about how community is what's going to drive, um, hopefully, a, a process away from decentralized thinking. You know, so it's decentralized thinking, so away from centralization. Sorry, I always get that the wrong way. Um, so. What's your next project? Have you got have you got anything on the agenda right now? You uh, you're obviously getting built into ready for winter with the, the farming, but yeah, it's an interesting question actually. Uh, to be perfectly honest, so I was obviously heavily loved in that, involved in that Kids Hub project and been heavily involved in Feds. Um, I felt like I we we were very much on the outer during COVID, and um, and. Uh, to be honest, I felt fairly slapped in the face by the community. Um, you know, we, I think our stand with, with um, COVID vaccines was fairly well known. I was reasonably outspoken about it. It was nothing to do with, my, my stand was nothing to do with whether people should or shouldn't take the vaccine. It didn't even ever pass comment on what I thought about the vaccine, but I was very against the mandates and, um, and I spoke out very strongly about that. I know several people who were absolutely shafted as a result of those mandates who had very valid reasons for not taking the vaccine and that should be their own personal choice but anyway by standing up and and, and I also felt very strongly about um, farming groups including federated farmers pushing their members so hard to, to to comply because I didn't feel that was any of federated farmers business or beef and lambs or dairy and zeds or any of the other myriad of people that decided to get involved in medical advice over that period of time. I just thought it was nuts. And I, I saw people um, disappearing into back corners of their workshops rather than participating in the community when actually that was when they most needed to feel a sense of community, but people were just getting 
um, sidelined and I was watching mental health issues arise because of it. It was heartbreaking. So I spoke out really strongly against that. And as a result, I felt really marginalized by the community that I'd worked so hard to be a part of. Um, And it's interesting now, I don't feel like anybody's marginalizing me now. I I think a lot of people may be... um, have seen that that the way that that was handled was wrong and with the benefit of hindsight you know they've kind of seen that um but I don't know I have I can't forget so easily (laughs) um and it's making me hesitant about how involved I get in the community and to be perfectly honest only in the last two or three months that I've really feel like I could walk around town with my head up um I really got into the habit of being extremely busy going to town with my head down too busy to talk to people um wasn't really too busy I just didn't really feel like I wanted to <laughs> um so it's t- yeah so I don't know what the next project is I'm still heavily involved in feds I still you know I don't think you ever and it's like a marriage you don't necessarily agree with everything your your other half says or does but that doesn't mean that you throw the whole relationship out <laughs> um and th- I fundamentally agree with what federated farmers does and um the role they play and the part that I can play in that um so I'm still heavily involved in that. I'm actually, I've just taken on my own little um, side business, I guess, of uh, supporting people. I've, I t- undertook a personal health journey last year, lost 25 kilos, got myself healthy, feel like a whole new person, um, feel absolutely transformed as a result of it. And so now I'm helping other people um, to achieve the same thing. And I'm loving doing that. So I guess it's not the massive big community project, but still helping people. That's a real core cool thing for me. Um, and I'm more involved in my kids' stuff as well. I'm president of the local gymnastics club that my daughter's involved in. My other daughter's down at boarding school in Invercargill, so that's a lot of road time and heavily involved in our own farming business. It doesn't all leave much room for too much else just at the moment, but who knows? <laughs> Thank you. Well, and uh, I was listening to you. You were you're saying things that got back to normal, Bernadette, as you know, where, where, where you saw those walls come up during COVID. You feel things are back to normal now? No, I don't know what normal is anymore. No, there's a new normal. Uh, I think there's a new normal. Um, Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of people got very deeply hurt and a lot will never be the same as it was. Um, I think actually more and more people's eyes are opened all the time about that that was just one thing. There's there's been so many things going on and there still is. And I'm seeing a lot more people be a lot more aware of how led we were and still are in many mm. ways. So yeah. I think, I don't think we'll ever go back to the old normal. I think all of us are a lot wiser than we were in one way or another. Um, but I, I don't I don't feel um, marginalised like I did then by any stretch. I, yeah, I think that's past. But um, to be perfectly honest, I think there's a lot of us that were in my position that it's really hard to forget and move on. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. We've been there at this point. We had to leave a couple of... I was on uh, one local volunteer organization. I left at the beginning. Uh, We are out here at quite a distance from town. You had to leave play centers and all. And again, you know, it is not personal. One doesn't blame anyone. But due to my stance against the vaccine, there were certainly ramifications for not just me, but my kids. And that certainly went deep. But I I can't help but ask now, you were talking about paperwork in the beginning and you said Mm. about a whole lot of compliance and tick box exercises. There's one that really gets my goat, that accredited employer visa suddenly out here in New Zealand after doing everything. And we have labor, a couple of units who are uh, on work visas. You suddenly have 
this new hoop to jump through. You need to become an accredited employer. You need to tick box an exercise, pay off on nearly a thousand dollars, and suddenly comply with the Modern Slavery Act. That I don't know where they dream this stuff up. Honestly, I don't know where they dream this stuff up. Then there's a winter grazing concerns and whatnot. They just seem to be no end to this. Yeah, I agree. It's it's like we've got to prove ourselves at every turn, isn't it? It's you know, I don't know who who these people are that think that we have to justify our existence to them, <laughs> but that's mm. what it is at every turn. And it, to be honest, it, it it there's a lot of non-productive people making a lot of money out of productive people, and it really really grates. And at some point, it's going to have to give because we're going to become an extremely unproductive country when there's so many people whose only task is to push pens and paper. Completely. Yeah, that, that, that's right, uh, Jas- um, sorry to interrupt, Jasper. Um, when when the term social licence to operate was first put in front of me, probably in the late, first decade, I knew we had problems. And that term is used more and more and more. And that's uh, why I think it's, you know, the, the influence of those words has come through everything you're doing inside your farm gate now, and uh, it's a concern. So, yeah, and, and just going back a step, the discrimination you felt, Bernadette, uh, it's great that you can talk about it. It's great that you can talk about a sort of healing, but isn't it interesting? We All three of us have had experiences in this sphere. Uh, no one says sorry. No one says they got it wrong. Uh, and in fact, you're right, people are now more distant with us than they used to be. Uh, and, you know, we're all very friendly people. So it's, it's an odd phenomena that we're all facing. We were too trusting. And now there's an element of distrust in all of us, I think. So uh, look, being candid about it like you have been is, um, well, it's great for us to all talk about it. Um, and yeah, and be be upfront about it because it has affected us all. Just yeah, that's right. And it, mm. it does feel like it's kind of just been parked and we're supposed to all just forget about it. And it's actually really hard to do. To be perfectly honest, I think now the distancing, um, I don't feel like other people distance me. I feel like I distance myself. And maybe that's something I need to get over. But it's, it, you know, it's that not not being able to forget. You, you forgive and you move on because life's too short not to. But um, there's definitely distance between me and some people that there wasn't distance between before um, because I saw a different side of some people. <laughs> but that's how it goes. It, yeah, we live and learn, don't we? And um, yeah, uh, people evolve I, and things move on. <laughs> I know I can hand on my heart say I was not a cynical person and I absolutely and I mean absolutely detest confrontations and yet that's what it came to. Mm. If I speak to some, you know, family friends who overseas haven't met me for a few years, they they often don't believe what happened. What happened to that person who, you know, who tried to blend into the background. But I think there came a point where many of us found ourselves in that corner, like, right, what do we do here? Mm. Yeah. Not I'd a love comfortable to- place. Yeah, exactly. If it's if I can go back to what you said about social license, Don, I'd love to. Because um, what I think is really interesting is the whole social license conversation is brought about by people that have a loud voice, media, um, government people, that kind of stuff. But I, when you actually go to the people who purchase the product, 
I don't think they care half as much about the stuff that they're supposed to, that, that we're told they care about. And a classic example is, um, you know, carbon-free products, um, you know, and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, my husband's from England and he talks at length about, you know, what he's seen where people walk into a supermarket and, and you hear about these surveys where people are asked, you know, when they're walking into a supermarket, what are the what are the things that make them buy certain products over another? And they'll say one thing and then when they come out of the supermarket within their trolley, says a completely different thing. And he said, you see it all the time around the supermarkets in Britain as well, where, um, you know, they might go and pick the the, you know, high value um you know product that's got the nice label on it that lists all these different um values that it has and then you get to the other end of the aisle and there's the two pound frozen chook <laughs> and all of these beautiful um high value products are chucked in the freezer and replaced with frozen chickens for two pounds or whatever it is that amount's probably not correct um which is really interesting so the consumer at the end of the day is driven by money and more and more so you know we're in a cost of living crisis not just in new zealand but all over the world do you really think people are going to pay over the odds for what's what says on a label they, they actually don't care they just want to feed their family um so i just think you know the stuff we're being driven to do in the name of what the consumer wants is an absolute load of rubbish well well it's interesting where i think about 18 years after dr john knight from otago university um developed a um uh a, well presented a paper on uh and i think it was called trust and country image and he came up with a to short form it, very much like you're saying, uh, uh, Bernadette, uh, people say they want um, the best of the best and were prepared to pay for it, but actually they weren't. They buy on price all the time when given the option because, yeah, when you've got mum, dad and the kids, uh, you just do have to look for value and not everyone is at that top end of town um, not worrying about where their next dollar comes from. So, yeah, I, th I think 100% right. Uh yeah, we, we say as New Zealand uh, exporters that we're pitching our products to the 14 million elite uh, consumers of the world. Well, good luck with that. Why are we uh, still uh, at the edge of, you know, uh, breaking even in some farms this year? Why are we looking at a zero balance? Um, something's not right. Uh, but anyway, uh, we still do it because, as you said earlier, um, that's what we love. Absolutely. I had a really interesting, uh, you might call it debate, discussion with somebody last night about um, He Waka Rekinawa and um, about the principles around that. And I was <laughs> sticking to my guns on that about, you know, they were saying, well, what's the big deal about, you know, shouldn't everybody have to know their number? And I was questioning, what value does that add? If, if I know that we're doing everything we can on farm to produce things as efficiently as we can, which we need to do anyway to, um, to be profitable, <laughs> and we're trying to avoid waste as much as we can, how does knowing a number make any difference to anything at all it doesn't it's just more paperwork and then you take that a step further and go okay well if and, and they said well that's so that you can justify whether or not you should you might need to be taxed down the track and I said well I, you know that's why we need some bottom lines around around what we are and aren't willing to accept because we know that in New Zealand we produce food you know this is assuming you accept that there's a global warming problem so just make that assumption not everybody accepts that and I get that and I'm not even saying whether or not I do but assuming you accept that there's a global warming problem if there is it's a worldwide problem it's not a problem that New Zealand can fix on its own but if we produce product at lower emissions than anybody else 
then reducing our production is is only going to increase production, allow production to increase somewhere else, therefore making the global warming problem worse. So anything we do in New Zealand to reduce our production in the name of global warming is nothing but virtue signaling. And because it's going to actually make the problem worse. And how is that responsible? <laughs> so, you know, these debates are going on constantly about are we ticking boxes in the name of what consumers supposedly want, or are we being genuine about the claims we're making? I read your article last year, Bernadette. I think it was titled uh, Sleepwalking into Food Shortages. And it's almost like no one here seems to acknowledge the fact that just see what happened in Sri Lanka last year. Mm. That did go down really well. But we seem to think that our, I think, what are we, 0.17%? I know it's less than a quarter of a percent of the world's emissions. They're going to make some sort of a massive difference. And it's the same line I hear everywhere, regardless of where I am be it at council, be it at generally, you know, chatting with somebody, we need to do something or rather we need to be seen to be doing something. How did we even get here? I don't know. The biggest contribution we could make to produce, to reducing global emissions would be to produce more and mm-hmm. have somebody else produce less. <laughs> oh, well, and, and in fact, um, Bernadette, unsubsidized production is the international gold standard that's our emissions trading scheme that's sorry that's our efficiency trading scheme unsubsidized production what the heck has happened to this country they don't revere the fact that we're the cleanest uh most untainted by um regulatory powers in terms of production subsidies or environmental grants and they still want to screw over uh, to the next level so i'm i'm heartened to hear um young leaders like you are standing up tall for this sort of stuff because, you know, it's been 20 years building to a crescendo and we thought we had it beaten in 2003. We thought we had it beaten in 2008, 2011. And it's just, uh, strangely enough, the can's just been kicked down the road and we are getting to the pointy end now because no one has been told the true cost of the net zero concept. Uh, But last night, or, or this week has been the uh, talk of uh, New Zealand Steel's uh, electrification of one of its uh, furnaces at a cost of uh, um, 300 million, 140 from the taxpayer. So 300 million to take 1% of the New Zealand emissions out of the out of the caper uh, means that there's 30 billion involved to do what they want to do. Uh, and it is, as you say, virtue signaling and worse, uh, Blue Scope, who owns that, uh, are able to continue using coal to produce uh, iron in, in Australia. So it makes no sense to me whatsoever. But greenwashing is the name of the show, Bernadette, and uh, that's why we have you on, uh, <laughs> to learn about how the next generation of leaders think. And I think um, you've expressed your case very well. Um, Thank you. So, you know, we'll be keen to have you on, but, um, yeah, half an hour has gone very quickly. Uh, <laughs> and I think uh, we should... We should let you go and um, get organised for your day and catch you back another time. So on behalf of Jaspreet and I, thanks for being on Greenwash today. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Thanks, Bernadette. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. 
We would love to hear from you. So get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Greenwashed with Jasper Eaton Don. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed the interview we did with Bernadette Hunt. She really does put it all out there and uh, she leaves you no she leaves no stone unturned in her life and and her thoughts and you know she talks about food security and and farming and the the threats to farming uh and what she's she and her husband have been through in recent years and it's great to talk to self-made people um doing it for themselves and uh and also the work that they do in their community but she talked about um the threat of pine trees um, taking out food producing land and Jasper, I know this is uh, something that you're very hot on. Uh, you've done a lot of research, so let's let's break into a bit of bit of that for a minute or two. Yeah. Now Bernadette had penned a great article that I mentioned uh, in the interview about uh, sleepwalking into a food crisis last year. We are. I somehow can't. I can't say I'm sleepwalking. I'm seeing it around me, Don. The wall of pine. The dark green is coming rather thick and fast out where we are, uh, especially Western Southland. I know Central North Island has seen a whole lot of increase in forestry, but I can more speak in more detail about what's happening in Western Southland. And I, for anyone who's not aware, pine forestry, the spine monoculture that's happening, which they call carbon farming is really you know shot shot up ever since in 2017 we bought the special forestry test so this is and because most of the people who are coming and buying pine forestry or rather converting prime pastoral land into pines are overseas investors and they were aided by the special forestry test which said that you know you no longer need to prove an economic benefit to New Zealand as long as you respect and maintain the existing you know, access conditions and so on and so forth. The land is yours for the taking. Come and plunder. And yeah, that's, that's a strong word, but I am seeing this around me. And I, I should qualify here because otherwise Dawn will do it for me. I have no problem with the right tree in the right place marginal country, hill country, steep sides, or, you know, something that you cannot access has to be top-dressed aerially. What we are talking about here, the land that's going into pines, is not that. Parts of it might be, but the vast majority is not marginal land. So I, I go to the LINS website, Land Information New Zealand, or if you just Google for OIO office decisions, there comes a whole list of uh, who's being buying properties or different businesses in New Zealand. And I just looked for forestry ones. 99% of the conversions that have happened in New Zealand have happened using the special forestry test program. So, which is what makes me think that this was bought in specially, especially to aid and abet overseas entities buying prime pastoral land here. One particular one that caught my attention is uh, Inca, I-N-G-K-A. Inca, uh, this is the entity that's been buying, and 
to so far, as per my count, they have bought over a dozen in the last two years. I'm looking just between 20, 2021 August till March this year. And three of those are around Tuatapri. For many people, Inca might not be a familiar name, but uh, IKEA ring a bell? Sustainable Nordic Scandinavian minimalist furniture? Well, this is their holding company, Inca. And if they, are they about to establish in New Zealand a warehouse, IKEA? I know they're in Australia and Brisbane anyway. Um, but, you know, there's 18,000 hectares. Uh, and, you know, you you talk about 2017 and the special forestry test. It did seem that things gathered a pace after that. But I do remind listeners that the ETS for forestry did start in 2008. Uh, I was against it then because, it, to me, it, it was unnecessary. I mean, I know it's all around climate change again, the same old topic we talk about. But I have a view that it was never hard to plant a tree. Uh, of your own volition for forestry. But all of a sudden, there's a compliance regime around planting trees for this sort of thing because they're going to measure something different. They're going to measure the carbon uh, sequestered in the in the trees and uh, acquire carbon units and the like. So, yeah, there's a, there's a concept in here that doesn't sit well with me, let alone the fact that uh, it appears that the privilege being given given through the special forestry test is being utilized to a, to a maximum effect but not by not by kiwi investors nope, and, not I, by and, kiwis. and you know i we we've we're not against uh foreign investment surely if they do uh administer you know abide by new zealand rules institutions pay tax all the rest of it um that makes sense but this is this is a desire to have uh, companies um, get legislative privilege and create create these carbon forestries that actually do nothing for a local community, nothing at all. In southern South and there was eucalyptus trees put in about 30 years ago, and I remember how up in arms the farmers of that area were, the ones that wanted to stick around and, and stay for the duration of their careers. And you know, I take my hat off to them that they did survive and stay there, but it decimated their schools and their and their their local halls and their local community. And so that's what we're going to see here. Without doubt, that's what we're going to see here. So I open uh, ingka.com, inca.com, and Inca says, we bring IKEA into people's lives. Driven by the IKEA vision to create a better life for many people, Inca Group brings IKEA brand into millions of homes. We are united by our culture, values, entrepreneurial spirit. Well, Don just said, when you're being given privilege, it is not entrepreneurial. You've not done this on your own steam. And as we grow, we make it even better for many people to do more on the sustainability front. Looking at their website, just the first homepage of Inca, Inca Group steps up to face the LGBTQ and inclusion grab. Inca invests 49% in three offshore farms in Finland. Inca rolls out big investment plans in Spain. Inca is thinking of moving to uh, non-dairy coffees and teas in there, and they serve quite a few. So I believe 
that their stores have, uh, you know, a bit of an eating area there. And oh, they do. I've been to a, a couple of them in uh, in the United States and, and in Australia, and I have to say their food is terrible. But uh, a different thing. They're really not there to sell food. They're there to sell furniture and um, homeware. So, and uh, you know, I, I'm a, I was taken by their concepts, but now they're into all this virtuous behaviour. Um, it just concerns me. Mm-hmm. And we've given them the right to be virtuous. Uh, and uh, as you, everyone knows, uh, my my beliefs is uh, are that it's um, completely unfounded. This this need to be so virtuous. It's right. And I wrote this to someone this morning. You know, the, all this climate change stuff um, that we get. If I say this to to a question I got, if it wasn't couched in terms of climate change or sustainability, then in days gone by, what we're talking about would be just deemed business as usual. You'd want to be doing the most efficient business model you could have. You'd want uh, the science around it to be utilized to the right levels. You'd want financing to be right. You would want transportation uh, for your goods and services. Um, but all these concepts that we're facing today just seem to be founded on self, some sort of selfish justification. And it comes at a much greater cost to consumers than a normal business would pass on. And so I concluded this uh, this message this morning by saying the self-interest swamp is full of comfortable and selfish alligators. And I know I say that in jest, but um, it is weird that we've we've allowed ourselves to go down this pathway at great cost and at great expansion of the administration uh, around it all. We are feeding the Wellington machine, as we talk about all the time, let alone the speculators um, that are adding nothing to those local communities. Absolutely and- nothing taking away from those local communities. Uh, stuff brings up an article about IKEA just uh, on the 13th of May, so not long ago. Traditional flat white off the menu, IKEA reportedly considering ditching dairy. So IKEA retailer won't confirm reports is going to remove dairy, but uh, it is set to open its first outlet at the end of 2024. It will be offering, IKEA says, for now, 50% plant food-based options because we see a trend towards climate conscious, oh, climate conscious consumption from our consumers seeing the increased sales of the plant ball and the veggie ball in this IKEA restaurants in Swedish food markets so well well and good if that's what they want to do but for now going by my search on the special forestry test inca group on the lens website department of land information they have bought a total of 18054 hectares in the last two years and out of these 13 properties Three were in silviculture already, and the other 10 were sheep and beef properties, and some quite big ones, like uh, the one at Waimumu, the 5,499 hectare wisp station in Otago, and there is one, two, and three around Tuatapri. Mm. 
and you know they're all good farms as you point out uh they're not like they're um backcountry uh unfertilized or or very hard to fertilize properties a lot of these properties have been fertilized uh for stock for years so the fertility has been built up uh by the previous owners and the trees will grow like topsy on these places they will grow very very well the ground will not be lacking for nutrients Nope. So they bought farmland, they but it's isn't it sad how food production takes a second place to uh to 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 forestry uh, or carbon forestry as they call it uh when there's this country that perhaps could go into if you want to be that virtuous uh carbon forestry that would be further back uh, and away from food production uh, intense food production uh country. So New Zealand set the platform here. We've set the platform for this. Uh, we're all guilty because we've let the governors of this country away with this, not for lack of warning them in 2008. I tried my best, uh, and I, that sounds so did others, but the forestry sector, they wanted this, uh, especially the forestry consultancy sector, they wanted this string to their bow. No different to farm consultants want to measure emissions from animals. They want another, another job stream. It's it's how it's played out. Exactly. And we have seen this. There's been, because this is, we are talking of it just from the, you know, the lens of food security or the wastage of prime land, putting it into pines. There is a social fallout here. And communities in lower and central North Island have seen that. They have seen that what's happened when entire communities dwindle. These places are planted and shut up for a long time. They don't support as many jobs. Not enough the children go to school. A small rural school closes. Halls close. Or the rates rise because suddenly, I think, Don, correct me if I'm wrong, forestry is not counted as an improvement, is it? Or what? How, what is the... I, no, I think they are rated on, on land value and capital value. I think they mm -hmm. are. Uh, but it depends on the policy of the of the of the council. Yeah, God's council. But but you know they'll expect the roads. Um, you know, in the in the past, those farms have had road servicing uh, to those to to the back door effectively. Now, uh, effectively, they're going to probably say, "Well, we don't need those roads anymore because we're not going to be doing anything here for a long, long time. So why should we pay for the roads?" Uh, that's just I'm, I'm just flying a kite there, but. Maybe that's what will be talked about next. I want privilege out of rating. Um, who knows? Who knows? But at this point, there's this um, place around us called Happy Valley that could pretty much be called Pine Valley now. There's the same companies are bought around this. There's some Malaysian companies here that have bought around Chuchapri. And I mean, we are no different, no special Chuchapri from, say, what's happening in King Country and Tomranui. Rupe, Rupehu, all of those areas. But as our last guest, Bernadette Hunt, spoke, we can't be sleepwalking this for eternity. This The fallout of this is going to be in front of our eyes sooner rather than later. And uh, they still haven't been able to tell us exactly how many forests do we need to plant and uh, how much will we lower the temperature by? Because that's the whole pretext, isn't it, for doing this? Oh, the whole pretext, and um, there's not one climate model that's um, uh, 
met its uh, met its mark. Uh, the tipping points have never happened. Uh, everything that's uh, posited is has been has failed. Uh, we're still working under this representation concentration pathway of eight point five, and no one can tell us why because uh, even the IPCC says that's uh, too high. So that's um, basically a risk factor, I suppose. It's a simple way of saying it. I think. I know there's a technical way of explaining it, uh, but it's all. It's it, it could all turn to custard. It could all turn to custard. And who is going to be carrying the baby at the end of it? There is massive uh, weed and pest issues likely to happen around the boundaries of these properties that neighbours will have to contend with. Uh, and plus there's a fire risk that no one seems to talk about that will be apparent mm -hmm. in a year or two, I'd imagine. So, uh, look, it's we're passing through in this time, and that my feeling is this will the deck of cards will have to fall. I wish that fallen soon after the concept was developed. And when I stood for Act in 2011, I wanted those property rights to be taken off uh, the foresters that actually were, were 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 doing carbon farming there. I thought it was a nonsense then. It wasn't a lot of money, but I, to me, they got a, a legislated property right that should have just been taken off them and the, the scheme should have died. But no, the National Party put it in and they were determined they were going to hold it. So this whole concept started under the national government in 2008. Sure, it was an inherited sort of regime after Labour, but um, I dare say Jaspreet, aside from all the virtuous stuff that's going on, it is about following the money. And as I said before, the farm, the forestry consultants uh, have spent a long time working towards this. And currently, and the carbon measuring people, the, I know it can be done by probably by AI and uh, and you know satellite imagery. Mm -hmm. But there's a there's a whole compliance regime out of this, and because you can't have one carbon unit being um, attributed if it's not there can you it all has yeah. to be measured to the minute eye it all, <laughs> has to, it all has to be and there is someone certainly clipping the ticket out of this justifying their job their paycheck but i, I think this is a good point uh, don to bring in our next guest and not the least because uh i seem to remember him doing a video with groundswell about the naked truth uh, about carbon farming when the farm next door to him, not far from me, near Gore, went into pine forestry. I'm talking about Logan Evans. He is ex-Groundswell, and he is our next guest today. So, Don, you know him really well? I know him reasonably well, and uh, I really like the guy. Uh, he's got some trademark habits, like he takes his hat off and rubs his bald head and then puts his hat back on before he speaks. I think it's really funny, but I love his, uh, oh, I've been to his property, and it, it's a stunning property. Um, but anyway, we'll go to a break, and uh, just remember, keep those texts coming back in 2057, and uh, emails at inbox at realitycheck.radio, and we'll see you soon. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back again to Greenwashed with Jaspreet and Don. Um, just remember to send in your texts if you want to give us some feedback on 2057 or an email at inbox 
at realitycheck.radio. We welcome your feedback. Uh, we really enjoy it. No matter what's and all, we take we take the good good and the bad. So our next guest, time to introduce him. And tucked into the sort of northern side or central part of the Hokanui Hills, where there was a few illicit whiskey stills in days of old, we find Logan Evans, farmer, uh, entrepreneur, really, uh, front man for the FU and formerly from Groundswell. But uh, Logan and his wife, Nicole, and family, they live in a stunning part of the country. Beautiful house, great vista. Logan, welcome to uh, Greenwashed. Uh, and, you know, I think we should start at the beginning. Yo, you were brought up in the same area or have you moved there over time and uh, with your families or was that where you were born? Uh, g'day, g'day, Don and Jasper. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, we, we, me and my family, uh, I grew up down um, down by Edendale by the dairy factory. Um, so we were uh, on a sheep and beef farm down there growing up, um, me and obviously mum and dad and my two sisters. So, uh, yeah, we moved up to about 20 k's west of Gore here about about the year 2000. So, um, yeah, we've been lucky enough to be farming here in these hills um, since then. And, um, yeah, I'm pretty, uh, we're pretty fortunate to be farming in this part of the country. It's uh, it's a great place to be, yeah. So you're, you're farming about 20,000, 25,000 stock units, I gather. Is that, yeah, is that what it is? You've obviously yeah. been listening. You've obviously been listening, Don. Yeah, about 20, yeah, no. 20 and a half. Yeah. So we're uh, uh, did my there. homework. Did my homework. Uh Otameter Valley, uh, in fact, is uh what you your address is, and Mount Peel is the name of um your farm. Uh you know, there's there's lots of aspects to your farm. Uh I've I've been there. Uh and can see the work you have done to improve it. Uh, what's what's ahead for Mount Peel? What's what's the next step? Oh, probably um, in the current situation that the country's in, a bit of consolidation and um, over the next few years, and yeah, just sort of focus on debt repayment. To be honest, um, yeah, we've still got like development projects. Um, you know, the the ten year plan's got a lot of stuff on it, but um, yeah, just now's not the time for that. Um, yeah, time to just consolidate and yeah, rein her in a bit. To be fair, so, so what I did note uh, doing a bit more of my research is you've done what um, I've sort of talked on this show about uh, the need to have sort of provenance uh, food uh, sales, and I gather you've got Origin South as the brand for your uh, three six five uh, uh, lamb production uh, and and meat meat sales effectively. Yes, so um, so we did have. Um, we've actually um, we've actually decided to pull that pull that one in. Um, that's part of the part of the consolidation, I suppose. Um, yeah, we were really struggling with that one. Um, it's in New Zealand. The processes have sort of got things reasonably tied up um, to get that processing um, in volume, um, and then yeah, just just the margins after that were very tight. Um, hey. Yeah, she was Gosh. costing us money instead of making money, so we've decided to pull that one in. Um, the, really, the only way we could see forward was if we could, um, you know, process ourselves. Um, but when we were trying to do, so we were trying to do a unit load every fortnight, so five hundred and fifty lambs every fortnight. Um, and the yeah, just the the logistics around getting to that scale was um, yeah the issue really. 
Ah, interesting, because I, you know, I was really hoping that was going to be a, a very good news story there, because that's what I think uh, a lot more farmers should do. And uh, But I do understand, and that's a, a good point to make to our listeners, that farming is fickle. And if you're in a climate that is uh, variable, uh, you know, from dry to wet to dry, you, know, you can't just guarantee you're going to be putting out that unit load a fortnight uh, or a week. Uh, it's not that easy to get everything going like peas in a pod, you might say. So going back a bit further, though, um, I'd like to talk about a little bit of your career uh, leading up to your being chairman of the Southern Field Days. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. Um, what what made you sort of work into that job? Uh, you come through Young Farmers, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So just a member of Young Farmers, and then um, I think they invited me along to the Southern Field Days Committee because um, we had a couple of reasonable trucks and tractor trailers and stuff for for getting um, getting working bees, uh, getting things happening there. Um, so I got invited on the committee. Jeez, I, was, I suppose I was probably 20, 20 or 22. Um, and, yeah, I suppose just made my way up through the ranks slowly and um yeah i i suppose they thought i i had it in me to uh to have a crack at chairman so yeah but but really being chairman i i had a really good secretary um sharon patterson was a, a very efficient lady she um she knows how to get jobs done um and then the whole committee there they like there's 20 25 of them and every one of those people on that committee um they they're assigned their their jobs um and they do them. Um the only time the chairman ever gets really annoyed is um, you know, when something's not going to plan. And yeah, yeah. And and I suppose you're really just uh what do you call it? You're just you're just putting out fires during the event, um, dealing with, you know, a site that isn't working here or someone's got an issue there. And yeah. But that was actually quite enjoyable once you get your head around it and um yeah. But it was yeah. it was also quite refreshing to come home and deal with a mob of sheep um, that don't speak back. And, um, yeah, generally if one misbehaves, you can catch it with your dogs and put it where it's meant to be. But yeah. Farmers like that, don't they, that uh, that solitude. You know, it's, farming is a good, good, good place to find solitude and uh, reflect on things that perhaps aren't going so well. So, I mean, that is a big deal. It's this, It's the second... Uh, largest field days in the country, I gather. And uh, the things that can go wrong are like strong winds, I recall, created havoc one time and then perhaps wet, wet another times. But I've been there a few times and I'd have to say uh, it's been commendable, the way it's been organised and the, this, the setting out of the whole, um, you know, the lanes and the regime that you walk around. It's all Fantastic. So, yeah, great to you you at the time and, and your successors and your predecessors, actually. They've done a great job putting up an event for Southland. Another thing that uh, um, this man who goes and finds solitude on his own occasionally does, he writes a bit of poetry. We're not going to have any tonight, I don't think, because uh, I'll put him on the spot otherwise. But another thing he does is, and I've seen it on social media, he does videos. And... Of course, uh, he he talks to the likes of Minister Parker and others, and gives them some real time photos of animals in the rain. But yeah, Jasper, you might have another story to tell. I I do, gentlemen. I, in fact, I remember you, Logan, from the video you did about the naked truth about farming. That was a couple of years ago, I think. That and it was two winters ago. 
that I made the trip to Gore. There was a groundswell meeting. Was it at Croydon Hotel then? And uh, that's when I, I think, first came across you. And when I saw that video, I mean, uh, pun aside, seeing the farm, it was pretty much next door to you, wasn't it? Well over a thousand hectares taken over by a subsidiary of IKEA. Yeah, and I, I saw that video and it had quite, I think it had over 70,000 views or something. Yeah, um, yeah, it had quite a lot. Um, mm -hmm. It actually wasn't one of Groundswell's best videos though, which sort of, it was quite hard to swallow, eh? but um, yeah, there was actually there was actually another video of some muddy water running down a, down the road that um I videoed, and it was running into some clear water that was running off our farm, and and that got over two hundred thousand views. Um, I remember that one too. You're talking about filtration by a gorse and others. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's um, it's been a funny old last two years, hasn't it? If you look back now from doing that that first video to where we are today, yeah. What? Tell us a bit oh, about how you've dealt with the last two years. Gee, was it's it's been a crazy ride, and and I definitely remember um meeting you at that meeting. Um, I was chairing the meeting, and we had um the current chair of well, not the current the well, he was current then the chair of beef and lamb at the time. Um, you know, tell us. Yes, Andrew Morrison, telling us that everything was, um, you know, just going going just fine and, and what was the problem. And and there was a lady in the crowd that had a lot of facts and figures and you, you were hitting them with them. And, um, yeah, you had my respect straight away. It was, um, it was really good to see and good to see that you weren't going to stand for the bullshit um, is the only thing I can, only way I can explain it, um, you know, the, that we were being told because everyone in that room agreed with you. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I, I should say, I was, I was really surprised to get the support there at that point because one doesn't really go to these places expecting to speak or I was hesitatingly sort of finding my feet at that point. But as we've gone down and as time has shown, there's certainly a lot of factors beyond the farm gate that are affecting us, headwinds coming our way. What? Yep. How would you state as the state of as the state of farming today? What has changed? Oh, gee, was um, it's to me, it's probably not what's changed right now. Um, but I suppose we, those of us who know, we know what's coming. Mm -hmm. um, like the national policy statement for Indigenous biodiversity, um, that pretty much encompasses well over eighty percent of our property here, um, and and even the wording of this is it legislation yet? I don't know if you call it legislation, but um, mm. the wording of it um, it it basically means they can interpret it whichever way they like. Um, you know, when you get down to the words of um, whether native flora or fauna is present or may have ever been present, that's a pretty scary thing to write in legislation because people that's down to interpretation, isn't it? It is completely um, down to interpretation, and yet then we have places like Hazel Dean in the White. Uh, was it Hazel Dean Station in the White, the Waitaki Basin, where uh, it is known to be the last uh, homeland of a rarest uh, native fish, the lowland uh, longjaw, and it was planted in pines. And suddenly it doesn't matter. So it seems to be that indigenous biodiversity is they pick and choose when they're going to map certain areas, and otherwise, I mean, we just follow the money, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. 
Yes. Hypocrisy yep. knows no no bounds, does it? And, uh, you know, that's the problem. Uh, did the farm, uh, I think it was called Coneburn, if I'm not mistaken, um, is it now planted in trees totally or what What did happen there in the end? Uh, so the, they're spraying it, spraying the dots. It's sprayed with dots all over it at the moment. Um, they've sprayed uh, right up to my boundary fence and almost underneath it. So um, I'm yet to have that conversation with the contractor, but, um, yeah, it's it's going in trees, yeah. So, so the double standards uh, that Jaspreet's just highlighted, for me, come down to um, the sanctity of the property right. And, you know, if we're going to have uh, rules and regulations um, that are just too oppressive uh, and too restrictive, you know, what's the upshot? You just have to break the rules, don't you? That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've always been taught that, that uh, rules are made to be broken, but yeah. Well, if you if you can't, it's a bit like the um, grazing rules in the south. And if you can't abide by them, um, people with a with a clipboard and a pen um, need to be told they're just not workable. And that's that was a mantra of the groundswell uh, uh, regime is to um, get rid of unworkable regulations. And I would and just say no. And I think you'd be um, still on the same side as Groundswell, even though you've moved on. I don't think you bear any malice to uh, to, to Groundswell. They're doing a good job. But as you said, um, changes are coming and society doesn't seem to want to talk about them. In fact, those of us that do are conspiracy theorists. Uh, but funnily, all the stuff we know about is written and documented and being in play, but we're conspiracy theorists. Um, how do how do you think we can get the the unsubtle message across? Because the emphasis that I'm putting on it is um, more than most would do. Most yeah. people pretend it's not happening and they just bury it along at the ground level. Bringing it out and seeing the cold hard light of day is going to take a few people to stand up uh, in the farming fraternity. Do you think it's going to happen anytime soon? Uh, I, I'm not putting my hopes on it. Um, to be honest, um, these people in these positions, um, they they don't seem to be accountable for their actions. Um, they they, yeah, it's almost like you you move in there and you get institutionalized and you can't speak out against it. Would that be would that be a fair comment? I I don't know what happens to be honest because when these guys are told. This stuff, they just completely glaze over. Um, I turned myself into the local conspiracy theorist at a beef and lamb meeting in Gore when I um, when I basically let Andrew Morrison know that this could be coming from some sort of global agenda, um, and he he pretty much just yeah called me a <laughs> conspiracy theorist and said if, if people choose to believe in these conspiracy theories, that's that's up to them. But the problem is that the conspiracy theories are making so much more sense than the bullshit that has been been being pushed on our ag sector. Um, we we learned all of the stuff in fifth form science, um, especially around around greenhouse gas emissions. I'm talking here, um, like none of this stuff makes logical sense. Um, but yet they're still trying to push it at us, and it's it's laughable, really. I just, yeah, I just honestly, I've got to the point where, yeah. 
I don't know, I probably shouldn't say, are these guys stupid, but how can they not see it? Um, it's it's really frustrating when you're sitting there. I've I've come from a frustrated farmer um, who wanted to join Groundswell to, to fight these unworkable regulations. Um, then I realised, because it's so easy to see through that, that it's more than just unworkable regulations. There's actually a narrative being pushed, and um, but yet, but yet they still can't see it. It's 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 frustrating, and I really, to be honest, Don, I don't know how we <laughs> move forward from here. Um, yeah, um, our whole governmental system is broken. Um, it's not serving the people of New Zealand, and and what would we do as Farmers, or what would we do in the private sector if our business wasn't working because of a broken system? Would we leave it broken and would we watch our business fail? Or would we go, hey, shit, let's let's find a system that works. Let's find a system that works for our business. So let's find a system that works for the people of New Zealand. Because I sure as hell um, don't want to sit here and watch my children um, be brought up in a, in a country that is going backwards at the rate of knots that this country currently is. Um, we're, we're passing a huge debt on to them. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's like, yeah, I'm probably going on about this a bit much, but it's, it's like um, I, I, I always bring this back to running a business. And if you're running a business, running a farm, you've got to look after your good stock. You've got to make sure they perform. And if they perform, you can look after your poor ones. That was probably a really bad choice of words. I think we should cut that. <laughs> but um, um, if you're running a business or a farm, should I repeat that? No, I, I get it. I get what you're saying, and it, 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 it doesn't it doesn't make any sense that farm next door to you at Baimumu, that uh, Inca, I think uh, that's the name of the company that's a partner of IKEA bought it. They have proceeded from that point. They bought over a dozen properties across New Zealand, but there is three pretty much next door to me, uh, five kilometers as a crow flies, three of them just around to a taproot. Really? And then we have people who are so greenwashed that they walk into IKEA and they think they are buying something sustainable. And yet here is IKEA greenwashing us, destroying rural livelihoods, Talking of sustainable employment and sus sustainable uh, future for mankind and all of those good practices. And what we are seeing is the exact opposite. And just like you, I I can't sit back and watch this. Neither can Dawn. And that's why we've all uh, been talking about this. Logan, do you see others around you now? You know, the last two years of COVID madness are sort of sort of trying to... I think hopefully they'll be over soon. The way going by the advertisements, I'm still seeing on TV and radio, they're probably not going to back up that fast. But do you see others now, now that the COVID hysteria is somewhat fading, beginning to see others beginning to question that, hey, something is not right here? Or do you still seem to be talking to yourself in an echo chamber? What do you think, honestly? I, I honestly do believe people are waking up to all of this stuff. I do. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes you wonder, um, but honestly, the so the response in Gore the other day when um, the council tried to oust their, um, their elected mayor, um, Ben Bell, um, to see that response from Gore, to see three or 400 people turn up and, and say, no, not on our watch, this isn't going to happen. Um, 
And whether the council felt that or not, I, I don't know, but um, I have never seen the people of Gore turn up like that in the past. And, um, yeah, no, they are waking up and, and just everyone's at a different point of realisation and, yeah, everyone's on their journey and um, and yeah. just because you're not as advanced as the next person doesn't mean you're not on the on the right journey and, yeah, I believe they'll get there, but it, it's a lot to get your head around. It is to 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 get to the point where you you can understand, you know, you can fathom that these people could be doing these things. Definitely. Yeah, it's mm. it is a lot to get your head around. Yeah, listeners, we're talking to Logan Evans from um, well, he's from the Hockenau Hills, really, and. He'd be one of the most authentic Southlanders you can ever come across and speaks from the heart. And, you know, what we're listening to here is, uh, you know, a lot of us have had some um, awkward moments in the last two or three years with our, with our colleagues and our neighbours. And you sort of wonder uh, when reality is going to sort of come back to, to earth for us all. Um and I think, Logan, you're expressing a view that it is on its way. We are starting to uh, mend the bridges, perhaps. Um, is that a fair comment? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And, yeah, as you just said, Don, um, you know, the last – I had the census people turn up here the other day, um, and um, yeah, I had to explain to them what the last couple of years has been like for my family and, um, you know, the fact – you know, the fact that some family members and you know, they they strongly disagree with it. And and it's um it's really hard. You know, we used to spend a lot of time with um these people and, and now you you don't feel welcome. Oh, yeah, it's it's tough. But no, we are on the right side of it. But um I suppose something I don't know if you guys are happy if I move into this now, but um I talked before about broken systems and, you know, I, I see us now, we're at the stage where we're coming up to one of the um, most important elections probably in the history of New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've spent a lot of time um, thinking about how, how we can sort this as a country and the, the issue is um, so many of these political parties, um, no matter which one you back, it's like a horse race. Um, but they've all got common ownership. Um, so a lot of these political parties in behind the scenes have got similar ownership or similar um, people behind the scenes. Um, so we're, we're working in a system that's broken, and how do we as a country succeed when we're working in that bro- broken system? We we can't. Um, so one of one of the people I've been fortunate enough to meet, um, and it was probably through my involvement with Groundswell, um, was Christopher Wingate. Um, I believe you have heard of him, Don. I don't know how much um, you've had to do yeah. with him. Yeah, no, nothing really at this point, but I do know of him. Yep. Um, so, so myself and Chris had similar views of what's happening in in New Zealand. Um, he said to me, "I'm going to start a political party." And I said, oh, geez, Chris, I think you're nuts. Um, but you go ahead and I'll do my FU thing with my FU mates and we'll catch up. But he came back to me a few months later and said, I've, um, I've sorted it. We don't need a political party. We just need a project. And he's called it the Fourth Hand Project. 
Um, so what the fourth hand project talks about is creating leadership accountability law. So if you know, if I ask anyone in the country, should the leaders of our country be accountable for their actions? They they would say yes. The leaders should be accountable for their actions. But how do we do that? We can't. We have no way to hold these leaders accountable for their actions. Um, so I'm not really, I'm not the brains behind this. Um, I've just been, I suppose, the test case that Chris rings up and says, hey, Logan, I've come up with this. What do you reckon? Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, he's talking about creating a, uh, yeah, another court um, that if the leaders of the country, if somebody believes they're not acting in the best interests of the people, they get pulled into this court. Um, it's trial by jury. And if you're found to not be serving the people of New Zealand, um, you're not you're not in trouble with the law. You just have to stand down from your, well, sorry, you get 30 days to fix that problem for a start. And if that doesn't happen, um, you are asked to stand down from your job. So that's it. So if you were the mayor of Gore and you were not, or the, perhaps the CEO, and you were not serving the people of Gore, um, you would then be asked to stand down from your job. And if you will not do that, then you're in contempt of court and then you get pulled into the legal system. But I think, um, I, I honestly don't believe that our country has a future unless we can move into something like direct democracy or or bring something like this in. And I just, it would be really interesting to hear what people think of, of Chris, Christopher Wingate and his, um, and his idea, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, you know, I think what I heard you say early in, the, in that piece was that uh, the system's broken. Uh, as yes, Minister like in Wellington, doesn't matter who the political party is in power, the same bureaucrats pull all the strings, etc. And that's probably right. Uh, in fact, it is right. Uh, I just I, I've watched people move left and right, and they're still in senior positions. Uh, in fact, and even in more senior positions uh, since I was there. So the issue would be how do you change and get enough uh, people to agree uh, right now? And we've talked about this on the show. People are comfortably numb. Um, they need to, to, the big wake-up call. What will it be? We think it's probably going to have to be a recession. recession. But, um, you know, we took, spoke to Professor Ian Plymer um, last week. He talked about a recession or a war could pull this, pull this into line. I'm, you know, I think it's even bigger than that. It's about the reality check that we talk about in this show. We all need a dose of reality in this country. We hassle farming as you've I mean, you've alluded to it tonight. Farmers wake up in the morning and you read the media and there's still someone else having a go at you. But there is not much else in New Zealand paying the bills. Uh, I know that sounds arrogant, but there isn't much else. So farmers do have to just get out of bed and say, hell no, um, H-O, and perhaps hell, H-O-W-L, no. Uh, and, and as Groundswell did, just say, just say no. Uh, to more and more stuff. It doesn't fix the political problem. So this is a big statement. doesn't fix the political um, system. We've got the Westminster system in New Zealand. I think you'd have a massive battle trying to break it. Um, but we've got to do something because you're right. We're in a bind. And, you know, you look at these polls that come out and you don't know whether they're biased, whether they're true uh, or who's doing them because um, they seem to be trying to nudge 
in a certain direction all the time. And I've got a view that political polls shouldn't be allowed in the last six months prior to an election. They just shouldn't because they do uh, play games with people's minds. Mm. I don't know. There's a big, it's, it's a big story, um, Logan, and you've, you've done well to sort of broach the subject because it's not easy to do. And Don, you've said in the past that there's, I think in those, in those exact words, that there's hardly a tissue paper between national and labor right now in terms of policy. So that's the obvious quandary. You you go from, uh, do we go out of the frying pan into the fire? Where are we heading? I, I think there was a couple more tissue papers put in last week with the budget, <laughs> but yeah, still still not a big big chunk of them. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, we'll see how it plays out. And um, really, Logan, I, all power to your arm. I know, as I said, you're the voice of authenticity. There's a few of you around the Gore area that speak out and and have your say, and it's about being brave enough to say it. That's the key. Um, never feel that you're uh, not good enough and you know i take my hat off to you logan um and your family the way you stand tall on issues that you believe in i wish more and more people would do it so you know i know half an hour has gone very quickly but we may have you back on in the future but in the meantime enjoy the rest of winter <laughs> in the south i hope you um get a bit of time to yourselves over the winter and uh, uh we'll catch you back here some other time in the future thanks logan and I think thanks very much for having me, guys. It's been Thank great. you so much, Logan. And as Don said, I can just reiterate, you have my complete respect, especially as one of the voices, uh, male voices during the parliamentary protests and other things. They were, it was very hard to do that, but uh, you were there staunch, uh, as were quite a few other Southern men. So thank you. And thank you for coming on today. I don't know, no worries. We've got a pretty, um, pretty strong, we, you know, group down here and it's, it's great to, you know, We've made some long lifelong friends and mm. even the, the two of you, it's just it's been brilliant to get to know you. And um yep. It's although, you know, what what do they say? Um, you know, out of out of hard times, I don't know what they say, but you know what I mean. Yep, yep. It but has a silver lining, doesn't way. it? Yes. Yes, that's what yes. I'm trying to say. <laughs> Thank you so good. much. Cheers, guys. Cheers. You've heard the words open. Fair, both sides of the story, it's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio, rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Just Breathe, and my co-host, Don Nicholson.
Thank you for joining us this morning. For listeners, a reminder, our number to text your feedback is 2057. Please drop us a line if you're so inclined at inbox at the rate reality check dot radio. I hope you enjoyed listening to Logan Evans, a Southland farmer in the last segment. I certainly did. And I have immense respect for him because he spoke his authenticity, I think, shown through. And over the last couple of years, Logan has always spoken up and even when it's not been easy. So, yes, my sincerest respect for this man. But before we move on to our next segment, and we do have yet another guest today, that's Steve Cranson, ex-farm consultant, a dairy farmer, and now most recently a candidate for Democracy NZ. I think it is time to have a listen to some goings-on in the U.S., where we saw Senator Kennedy speaking, or I should say grilling, the energy secretary. And I'll let you be the judge here, but I certainly found this riveting to listen to a politician asking some hard questions because God knows we are starved for that here. So have a listen and then we'll go on to listen, have a chat with Steve Cranston. Mr. Secretary, thanks for being here. I want to tap your expertise for a moment. Uh, give, give me um, uh, give me your best estimate, just an estimate I know, uh, of, of uh, uh, how soon you think the United States of America will be carbon neutral. So uh, I think, according to the climate scientists around the world and certainly the cutting-edge scientists that we need to rely on here in the U.S., we've got to get carbon neutral by 2050. And I'm very comfortable with that target. And I think that's the appropriate by 20, target. By 2050. Which is only 27 years. That is not a long time away. And, and how much will that cost? So the cost that I focus on even more is all the costs no, that the are going to happen cost. if we don't get our act together. How much will it together. cost to get us carbon neutral? It's going to cost trillions of dollars, and it'll cost tens of trillions of dollars if how, we don't get our act together. How many trillions? I don't have the estimate or the numbers in front of me. I've seen a variety of different estimates, but it's a large amount. Fundamentally transforming our energy economy tell me the is a big deal. You, tell me the estimates that you've seen. I don't have those numbers right on hand. So, so you're advocating that we become carbon neutral, but you don't know how much it's going to cost. So there's an awful lot of estimates out there. It depends yeah, on technology you're the, you're improvement the and other kinds of things. You're the expert. I know, I know with how much it's going to cost. I know with the certainty of all the experts I've spoken about, it's cheaper to get our act together than it is to not get our act together on climate okay. change. Then tell me the cost versus the cost that we, if we don't do it. I think it's orders of magnitude different. If we I don't get that, our act together, you, it's you don't You don't have a cost? You want us to get there, but you can't tell the American taxpayer how much it's going to cost? Is that your testimony? It's going to save us money, and there's a lot of jobs. Well, how do we know if you don't know how much it's going to cost? Uh, I'd be happy to pull up the latest numbers that I've seen. How about $50 trillion? Is that right? It's going to cost trillions of dollars. There's no doubt about it. Okay. If we spend trillions of dollars and we achieve, some of your colleagues estimate $50 trillion. And it disappoints me that you're not willing to give the estimates. I, I don't. I, I hope you're not telling me you have no idea how much it's going to cost. That creates a whole new host of problems. 
but but uh, if it costs fifty trillion dollars, as some of your colleagues have testified, to become carbon neutral by two thousand and fifty, and I'm all for carbon neutrality, by the way, how much is that going to lower world temperatures, or how much is that going to reduce the increase in world temperatures? So every country around the world needs to get its act together. Our emissions are about thirteen percent of global emissions. Yeah, but if right you could now. answer my question, if we spend fifty trillion dollars to become carbon neutral in the United States of America by 2050. You're the Deputy Secretary of Energy. Give me your estimate of how much that is going to reduce world temperatures. So, so first of all, it's a net cost. Um, it's what uh, benefits we're having from getting our act together and reducing all of those climate benefits. We're seeing Let me ask again, maybe I'm, being, right now. maybe I'm not being clear. If we spent $50 trillion to become carbon neutral by 2050 in the United States of America, how, how much is that going to reduce world temperatures? This is a global problem. So we need to reduce our emissions and we need to do everything we can. How much, if we do our part, countries. is it going to reduce so world we're temperatures? So we're 13% of global emissions. You don't know, right do you? You don't know, do you? You can do the math. We need to you don't know, do you, Mr. Secretary? So we're 13% of if global emissions. If you know, why won't you we tell went, me? If we went to zero, that would be 13%. You don't know, do you? You just want us to spend $50 trillion, and you don't have the slightest idea whether it's going to reduce world temperatures. Now, I'm all for carbon neutrality, but you're the deputy secretary of the Department of Energy, and you're advocating we spend trillions of dollars to seek carbon neutrality, and you can't, and this isn't your money or my money, it's taxpayer money, and you can't tell me how much it's going to lower world temperatures? There or you won't tell me? You know, but you won't? In my heart of hearts, there is no way the world gets its act together on climate change unless the U.S. leads. Tell me. Well, you get the drift, but it is certainly refreshing to see a politician ask some hard questions. Have a listen to this interview. It's easily available on YouTube. And the person on the receiving end is the Honorable David Turk, the Deputy Secretary for the U.S. Department of Energy. On that note, we'll take a short break and come back in a moment with Greenwashed and have a talk with Steve Cranston. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Hello and welcome back to Greenwashed with me and Don Nicholson. For listeners, our text number is 2057 and for emails, it's inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Don and I have with us today Steve Cranston, a dairy farmer from Vaikero an ex-consultant, and of course, there's a whole lot more in the works here with Steve now standing for Democracy NZ. Steve, the floor is yours. Would you tell us a bit more about yourself? I mean, I know broadly from Facebook and the joys of internet, but what else have you been doing? Yeah, thank you, and very much appreciate you having me on. Right at the moment, still very much busy on the farm. There's work to do, but really picking things up with Democracy NZ and trying to get the message out to farmers that there's there's another option out there. There is a party that's willing to really stand up for farmers, uh, call it as it is, and really try to sort some of these issues out at the root instead of just sort of towing the line uh, you know, politically, and and farmers always end up paying the price when political parties do that. So we're trying to create a real change there. 
I don't want to take you off the, that direction for the, for the moment, but um, can you give us a bit of a background, uh, but even before that, your secondary schooling or your education, where you were brought up, just sort of to give a bit of a, a feel for, for, your, for you as a, as a young man standing for politics? Yeah, well, I'm originally from Whangarei, born and bred on a dairy farm up there. I've sort of moved to, um, I actually went overseas and did quite a bit of travelling for a number of years and then came back a bit later and decided I was going to get into uh, agricultural science and become a consultant. So I went down to Lincoln and got a BAG side degree there. And probably about that point, I sort of picked up an interest in agricultural emissions. Um, I did a couple of papers on climate um, science down there and could sort of see that we weren't sort of getting taught. Um, we weren't really getting taught the whole facts. Um, so I, I used to have some pretty good discussions with the, the professors down there. Didn't help my grades, but um, it certainly did help enlighten me to how um, climate change sort of works in the education system and how, how political it is. Um, so, yeah, and after that, uh, I became a consultant. Um, but this is an area that I certainly had an interest in and started sort of writing articles around uh, methane being short-lived and when it's stabilised, it doesn't add additional warming to the atmosphere. That That's a very big point for agriculture, given that in the New Zealand context, our methane has been stabilised for, for a while now. And that message um, just never seemed to get through. It, it wasn't understood by most people in the industry, even industry leaders, certainly wasn't understood by politicians. So, yeah, that was sort of the main message that I was sending out. And, yeah, gladly it, more and more people started picking it up. Um, certainly it wasn't only me. There's a, there's a few other voices in the, in the wilderness sort of pushing that same message. But I guess Groundswell um, got in touch with me at some point a um, couple of years ago. And, yeah, then I sort of became a spokesperson for them and sort of really kept pushing the, the arguments around uh, methane's warming effect. And I guess where we are now is we're seeing um, that message quite clear. It's, it's quite openly discussed now um, within the agricultural sector. I still don't think it's understood um, very well um, by the wider um, New Zealand public and most politicians probably still don't really have their head around it but we're at the point now where there's enough people are aware of these issues that we can sort of demand answers so we're in a good place but there's still more work to do we're certainly not there yet. Steve, I've been looking at uh, fii.org.nz and I can see your uh requests for information going, you know, official information requests, there is nearly two dozen and they go back <laughs> right back to 2018. So you have been busy in this space for quite a while. But from, you know, traveling, farming, consultancy, politics now, what is there any one incident or, you know, what has gotten you down this path? Um. Yeah, well, I guess, you know, I was quite enjoying my time at Groundswell and I could see the the really positive um, work that was being done there, particularly around sort of education and, and influencing other groups, industry groups and political parties. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, you can't make real change unless 
you know, real change is delivered in Parliament. And I guess my concern is I sort of didn't have a lot of faith in the other so-called farming parties out there. There's the National Party, which are completely hopeless, if you ask my opinion. Um, they're, they're just they're prepared to sell farmers out completely. And the Axe Party, they're, they're a bit stronger on this. They're certainly not fans of the farming tax, but I don't see them coming out really standing up for farmers in any sort of meaningful way. And, you know, with all the other big issues going on in New Zealand at the moment, I think it's quite likely they could prioritise other issues that are important to them around co-governance, um, something like that, and and not really dig their toes in for farmers. And then at the end of the day, we'll end up um, exactly where we were. So I felt that there's a real need for a party out there that is prepared to just really stand their ground and stand up for farmers. And that's probably the one thing that um, drove me to join Democracy NZ and, you know, try to create a real genuine voice for New Zealand agriculture. Right. And, uh, that's a great aspiration. Of course, um, as you know, the National Party uh, under an MMP environment does have to pander to um, the urban voice more than the you know the, the rural voice. It's just the way MMP works, and it's taken a long time for farmers to wake up to how that power base has shifted. But yeah, um, well that, yeah, sorry. But but you know you're you're from Mulu country. Uh, aside from stealing property, uh, you know, southern property like uh, Damien McKenzie and Marty McKenzie and people like that in the past and putting in your chief's teams, um, um, is it the farmers, do they get this? Do they get the significance of a future tax on on emissions uh, that is is inappropriate? Do you think they're going to buy into the – have they sold their soul to the governments of the day and said, look, we can't beat this? Um, that's a that's a good question. Um, there is the farmers that understand it uh, are quite passionately um, fighting this because um, they know how unfair it is. They know farmers aren't really the problem, and they're, they're literally being scapegoated by the government. Um, but there's a lot that have sort of just have a, a blind faith that the industry groups, the the federated farmers, the dairy and Zs, or or the national parties just going to treat them fairly. Um, I think that sort of apathy is a big concern within agriculture. Um, I think it's probably more prevalent um, in dairy. I think dairy on the whole, there's less financial pressure. They're probably more willing to sort of um, compromise on a lot of this stuff. Um, but the sheep and beef sector, I think they've really stood up in recent months or the last sort of year or so awareness is, is really increased in the sheep and beef sector. They know what's on the line, basically the survival of their sector, and they know how many farms are going to be out of business at, or, and just get um, destroyed by carbon farming if, if uh, legislation like this is, is actually um, progressed. So I think they're the ones that are really leading the charge, but in saying that, there's a lot of farmers across the board that are, are well aware that this is a complete stitch up and, and they're pushing back. But have we reached a, a critical mass? Um, I, I guess we'll find out at the election what, what, the, what the real feeling is. So, so just carrying on from that a little bit, um, the HWE and Haywaka Ikanoa process, was it your impression that farmers were being encouraged to... Uh, uh, to, to impose a tax on themselves, like in a world first, uh, 
it was like they were being seduced into being told, put a tax on yourself and and that will that will help. Um, what's your feeling of that? Because that's how I assessed it. I just would love to have your opinion. Yeah, the industry was very much led along um, into Hiwaki Kanoa, sort of being promised that it was a better solution and that something needed to be done. I guess the flip side of that is it was never really a choice. Um, the ETS backstop was always sitting there and always threatened. So it was pretty much you tax yourselves or we'll tax you, um, we'll tax your industry for you in an even blunter and more destructive way. Um, so it was never really a choice there. But yeah, going back to why how a lot of farmers possibly haven't been pushing back as much as as they should have if they understood it. It's the industry group sort of really went along with it and actually tried to sell the the Hewaki Ekanoa dream to farmers. And so a lot sort of believe that this would be beneficial or it won't be too harmful. And but the more it's progressed, the more sort of facts are actually coming out. And and that's why um, I think pushback has dramatically increased. Um, once the information's actually been um, put out there for farmers to see. And, and even now, there's still a lot that, that's kept well under wraps as far as the inner workings of Hiwaki Ekanoa. Um, yes. it, it has not been a transparent process, I can tell you that much. Yeah, that's that's how I assess it too. Uh, but the other thing that, that sort of grates a little bit at me is it seemed, an ab- while it seemed like a, a nice thing to do, farmers accept the process, accept the cost, accept the transitions. Um, it took all the heat off the politicians. And the only people that need the heat on them are the elected people that are putting uh, this sort of stuff in place. If you, you know, if your elected uh, levy, if your levy agencies or fed farmers are endorsing something um, that's a cost on yourself, it doesn't seem the th- the norm for any part of society. I've never known any part of society to say tax us and we'll be happy. So that and so to me, it took the heat away from the Minister of Agriculture and Minister for Primary Industry, and he was smiling all the way until uh, perhaps it didn't work. That's how I assess it. But um, can you have your opinion? It was on that. it was very it was very strategic how the government went about this, basically using their own industry groups to to get the emissions pricing over the line. Um, What was, I still don't completely understand why they've gone along with it Um, so much. There is, if you are um, cynical, you could argue that the levy bodies uh, are set to receive, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars over time um, through the farming tax. So there could be a bit of empire building. There's, I guess, a lot of people sort of, want to get um, a, a big tick on their resume for for achieving, you know, this would be quite a significant change to the industry. There might be a few individuals that are, are really believe that that would be um, quite an achievement for them personally, but there's certainly no benefit to the to the average farmer from taxing farmers. Like it's absolutely nonsensical, and and it's not something that consumers are actually calling for, and that's the big lie that's sort of been talked about at the moment that that we need to be taxing our farmers to maintain market access. Um, that, that's that's very much a lie, but that's what farmers have been told to to toe the line. Well, that, that lie has been told uh, since I, I can remember, even as far back as the first decade, 
late first decade, it was told, we were told, uh, market access is why you've got to start ticking this um, emissions box. And of course, now, uh, I think, Steve, you're aware of new science, um, aside from what you talk about, about the stabilised methane and the um, short-term effect of methane, uh, there is other science that's come to bear in the recent years that clearly shows methane and nitrous oxide um, are in the real atmosphere completely overshadowed by um, water vapour and CO2 and have a minuscule, almost immeasurably small effect on warming. And so why 48% is, uh, of New Zealand inventory is ascribed to uh, to animal agriculture and perhaps some other biogenic um, emissions likes of settling ponds and the like, uh, it does seem that that appropriation is completely skewed at that point. But moreover, there's another element called global warming potential. Do you want to ex- expand on that? Um, yeah, well, I'll just sort of explain, I guess, the angle that I come from. Um, I've been pretty clear um, to say that there's no evidence, and this is an actual fact because we've asked the minister if he can provide any evidence that New Zealand agriculture is um, warming the planet, and he can't do that. And so that that's with one of the OIAs that um, we sent a while back. So the reason for that basically is, is methane being short-lived, um, so if you're not increasing your stock numbers, um, the animal, the emissions stay stable over time and the methane is decaying at the same rate that it's been emitted. So that's no additional warming. The remaining 20% of agricultural emissions are nitrous oxide. Um, but the, another part that often gets left out of the equation is the fact that New Zealand agriculture has about 2 million hectares of woody vegetation. And that is that should be more than enough to offset that nitrous oxide. So when you do that basic equation, no warming from methane, nitrous oxide being offset by on-farm sequestration, you end up with there or thereabouts no additional warming from New Zealand agriculture. So that is the basic argument um, that I've been making. But yes, on top of that, Um, If you really dig into the science, and this is something that I'd like to do more of and and hopefully get um, this this angle out for more discussion during the election, is that the likes of methane and nitrous oxide um, are really pretty much irrelevant in general because they're just not, they don't operate at the end of the spectrum that that actually um, adds to um, the greenhouse gas effect at all. It's just completely dominated by water vapour. And that argument makes a lot of sense. It's not one that's got any traction so far. Um, so it's you're sort of starting from the bottom to, to really sort of push or, or get that discussion going. But it does seem legitimate. And, and I think that the likes of the Climate Change Commission or the Ministry for the Environment do actually owe an explanation on that. And that's sort of something I'll be looking at doing. I was listening to you, Steve. You're talking about the woody vegetation and sequestration. It's nothing being cut. It seems to me that we've uh, deemed that the almighty pine is the only one that can help us sequester anything and to hell with any of the fallouts, which are not that great. I see around here where we are in Southland, uh, overseas investors buying up farms, three just around uh, us where I am in Western Southland, all by a partner of IKEA, sheer devastation. And there was a promise in last elections 
that, uh, you know, 100 days or was it 90 days after the new parliament was in, they're going to give councils the right to decide where, what, the right tree. Do you guys have any sort of policy on that? And generally your take on what do you see this as, this mass monoculture that's on? Yeah, well, that's probably one of the things that really concerns me is the growth of carbon farming. And it is actually having a, a devastating effect on a lot of communities. Um, it's it's really no competition out there at the moment as far as the sheep and beef, uh, hill country sheep and beef competing with carbon farming. You know, there's five times more profit, basically, um, just just planting trees, shutting the gate, um, not circulating any more money in the economy, not providing any jobs. It's a trend that rural New Zealand just can't continue because, um, you know, well, it, it's just not sustainable. So that <clears throat> that is a, a big one for us. And the approach that we're taking is um, it's, it's really all driven by the carbon price. I know I think nationals out there sort of tinkering with sort of how many offsets um, can be um, that carbon farming can actually um, offset. Um, but it, it ultimately comes back to the carbon price. And at the moment, it was up around above $70. It's still 55 It still distorts rural economics. Until you get that carbon price right down, there's always going to be issues as far as um, how it works economically. So our approach is to link the carbon price to that of our trading partners. Um, and our, our dominant trading partners are not paying a lot of money in carbon tax whatsoever. So that's going to bring it down well under $20 um, on the calculations I've done. And once you do that, you, you bring everything back into alignment um, there's no real incentive to go out there and destroy farmland to plant trees. It would be barely economic. So that there, to me, is the best long-term fix because I don't see, once you put that policy in, keep that carbon price down, quite frankly, I don't see China coming out anytime soon um, dramatically increasing their carbon price or, or a lot of these other um, significant trading partners. So um, I think that that'll... Um, take care of that issue for, for quite some time. Yeah, we'd like to believe that's the way the uh, pricing's going to go, Steve. In fact, I'd love it to go to zero so all this just falls to bits. Um, could be a pipe dream. Let's hope uh, it isn't. But I'm now aware that uh, agents in, in Europe want, uh, like the World Economic Forum and others, want a standardised uh, emissions measurement system and they want to set a sort of carbon floor price so some sort of standardized globalized system i think that will be a disaster for new zealand uh it's a disaster anyway but uh you know we're unsubsidized producers many of the countries we're dealing with uh do have multifunctionality payments environmental grants to keep themselves functioning and profitable uh, so we're competing on an uneven field before we even start, as we are now, by the way, with our um, unsubsidized farming systems uh, competing with them currently. But add in carbon uh, pricing, and it just it just adds to another layer of complexity. Is is have you got an opinion on that? Oh, anything like that which tries to put a floor on the carbon price is going to be an absolute disaster, and. 
Yeah, it's, it's just economies just can't sustain that. It, it's the the carbon tax. They've even um, had to um, sort of limit the growth of the carbon price now because the government is well aware that if the carbon price kept increasing like it was, it, it's just going to absolutely destroy the economy. So I, it's just a crazy idea that we are taxing energy, taxing food production. It, it just doesn't make sense to me um, at all. And certainly from our perspective um, and Democracy NZ's perspective, um, we're not interested in being dictated to by overseas organisations. I think, you know, we're a sovereign country. Um, on some, you know, international issues, there we do need to play a part and be part of that global community, but we're not interested in being um, dictated to in, in these sort of ways. So that would be something we would be absolutely against. Um, on the carbon price in general, yeah, there's a strong argument to say that, you know, no carbon price um, would, be, would keep a lot of people happy. I can certainly understand that angle. Um, but the way I look at it, um, there are things out there around we believe in adaptation. You know, the climate is very gradually changing. Um, there's certainly no information out there to say extreme weather events or, or a lot of this um, sort of more visual or, um, <clears throat> you know, the more costly sort of things that are happening are actually linked to climate change. But there's still a lot of investment that can be made and improved flood management, um, you know, erosion control, better roading, better bridges, We'd like to see some, um, or well, all the climate funds um, that are raised go to those sort of things, you know, with actual tangible investments that New Zealanders get a benefit from. So if it is does turn out to a $15 carbon price and that money is actually put towards improving our infrastructure, that's still money well spent because it's going to come out of tax dollars either way. So it just seems a good way to to tick a box to be part of the international community, but spend that money wisely and actually get a return. So that's the position that we're taking. I, I'll, I'll go to a slightly more, uh, a slightly different topic from just rural steep. This uh, morning, I saw an article about NZTA, as I'll call it, Wakakutahi, consulting on bilingual road signs. There is no information yet about what that's going to cost, where it is headed, but that seems to be a priority right now in this country. And I've seen, and you must have seen it about you know this whole these last two years have certainly divided us in more ways than one. But this is one of them. This whole sort of cultural uh, wars that have been created. What do you what do you feel? What are your thoughts on this? Do you see this as an issue at all? Actually, well, it's. What I believe is the biggest issue is, is just the overall government waste and the ideology. Um, there's huge amounts of money wasted on on these sort of things. And, you know, like there may be value in, you know, um, expanding sort of place names and that to, to give um, to give more Maori name recognition. Um, that, that would be, you know, an individual opinion. But I think what we can all agree on is at this point in time, New Zealand has a lot of issues. We've got a, a healthcare system that's collapsing. We've got kids that aren't getting taught in school. We've got potholes all over our roads. It's just priorities. Um, we need to be spending money where it's actually needed right now. And when things are going swimmingly and all New Zealanders are in work and, <clears throat> you know, all these other burning issues 
um, are not there, then we can start having conversations about um, some of these other issues. That, that's sort of the way I see it. So, um, yeah, you know, about 20 years ago, there was a, st- a slight trend into uh, on the major, you know, the big green signs that sort of led onto Highway 6 or Highway 1 or something, and you saw um, Maori names joining uh, with the English ver- English names, and that seemed to be appropriate. There were signs were big, they were uncluttered. They didn't they didn't sort of take your vision away from uh, what you wanted to see, actually. Um, but now it does seem to be to me is that this is a road safety issue, um, in my opinion, Steve. Um, maybe it's something that Democracy New Zealand will have to look at, but uh, it's just another one of those things, along with uh, road cone. Uh, Fever, road cone fever in this country. We just can't seem to get away from this overbearing, um, over governance and over control uh, system. So, you know, you say you say that democracy in New Zealand would be seeking to get value and put back into health, education, and the likes of policing. You know how how do you think that will fit with potential coalition partners? Uh, who have a different way of thinking about um, holding on to their spot. Let's say Democracy New Zealand gets into into Parliament uh, and has to work with the National Party. What sort of influence do you think you'd get over them? Hmm. Well, um, (laughs) yeah, well, that all comes down to um, the lay of the land after the election, I suppose. And on the last polling that was done, the Maori Party hold the balance of power. So they're obviously going to have an outsized influence and you're going to see a lot more Maori signs around the place, I suppose, if that happens. Um, but if if Democracy NZ, if we bring in sort of four or five or, or however many seats, um, there's a good chance, the way things are at the moment, that, that we could hold the balance of power and then we would have significant influence. Um, so that, that's the hope. That's how we would have the biggest effect. Um, but... I guess we we agree with I guess the overall um, improvement that national would offer compared to this current um, government. They've certainly got a long way to go to to how we would um, sort of manage the economy or or policy in general. Um, but yeah, we would just be pushing sort of our our own key issues really hard and just really digging our toes in on that. You know, the Bill of Rights, um, standing up for farmers. Um, getting ideology out of education. Um, so, yeah, on our key issues that that we have campaigned on, um, we're just going to push those really hard. And, yeah, just be realistic. At this election, we'll get certain things across over time. Hopefully that grows and we can have more influence and and sort of really get to a point where we're starting to reduce government would be the long-term um, sort of goal and get back to people having more say and less sort of top-down governance, um, which is the way, certainly the way things are hidden at the moment. And that is music to my ears, less government. I've often said the most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I It has sort of done us a disservice, the number eight wire mentality that people can, can sort things out for themselves, but here We've seen in the last three years the complete big brother overbearing attitude. And I think it is exemplified in the Resource Management Act and the central planning committees and all of that further pushed towards centralization. Local democracy 
seems to be all but a name, just just gone completely. Yeah, well, the RMA is deeply concerning. Um, you know, the the farm emissions tax has been a passion of mine for a long time, and I can see the damage that's going to do. But there's a number of other um, changes that are coming in, in new legislation, which could cause equal damage um, to rural communities. The RMA is definitely one. Um, some some farmers that have had a good read of that would go as far as to say that they would make um, basically the the industry unfarmable if it was actually followed to the letter of the law. Um, there's just so many roadblocks, so many unelected. Um, people having having a say in how you run your business. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's going to be a, an absolute disaster if that carries on. Um, they haven't done their homework on it, obviously. Um, so it needs complete it needs a complete overhaul and that's sort of our position at the moment is you know just go back to the start and and do it properly. And I guess one theme that is probably, well, has been well and truly left out of um, the current proposal is, is property rights. Um, we believe if you own land and you're responsible and take care of the environment, um, you should have um, the greater say on how that land is managed. So we want to get back to sort of basing policy on property rights and far less on sort of the government's whims of the day, which um, seems to be where things are going at the moment. It's interesting because you you talk about uh, reduced um, government, and often po- posited is the uh, the Swiss model uh, of government, where in about the year two thousand they uh, in a in a referenda uh, decided that they would limit the size of government, and as a percentage of GDP, their their debt was the handbrake, and so they've reduced their debt from um, twenty or almost thirty nine percent of their GDP in. 2002 to sort of around 18% in 2018. And that has put the handbrake on. That has meant that local cantons have a more say in their governance. And uh, it seems to be something that is talked about more and more in New Zealand. I mean, I've we've had it on the show, so I decided to research a little bit of it. Do you think local government, we, and, and secondly, in my time, there's been probably 10 local government um, reviews. They all seem to sit on the shelves gathering dust. There was some good stuff in some of them. Uh, funding policy reform was was key in my, my assessment. Do you think we've got a massive problem with the unfunded mandates heading from central government to local government? Uh, for instance, the underfunding of roads uh, and, and a serious appropriation of those costs onto, for instance, farm owners unfairly. Mm which happens through property valuation-based rating. Do you think that's the big issue? Um, well, the the whole governance and bureaucracy is a massive issue. There's just so many layers. Um, at the moment, yeah, government is dictating a lot of uh, regulation to councils, and then they need to sort of um, deliver on that. And there's just so many rules and bureaucracy out there at the moment that even even the people doing it can't keep up. They can't even get consents out on time. They're just completely swamped with all the work they've created for themselves. And yeah, that the Swiss idea makes a lot of sense. Just it needs to be limited. Like the way it's going at the moment, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. 
and it's just becoming a massive handbrake on the economy. You can't have so many people in the unproductive economy, not even unproductive, they're actually making the productive economy um, less efficient, you know. Every regulation, every bureaucrat out there that's telling someone else how to do their job actually slows down the economy. So there does need to be a complete rethink. It's not something I think it can be just done in one election cycle, but um, there needs to be real pressure on the growth of bureaucracy, the massive amount of waste, and and really dial that back. Um, and yeah, some sort of cap or limit to to how much um, that um, I guess bureaucracy can spend would be a good way to sort of start that. I think start that journey to to dial it back. So. In, in your region, Waikato, do you see local government expanding its remit uh, without a mandate, uh, you know, doing all sorts of stuff outside, for instance, roading, waste, water, uh, and going into lots of economic development, uh, putting grants and, and uh, you know, funding the Bright Ideas Brigade in your own community? It's something that the local authorities don't have a mandate to do, but they seem to be doing it nationwide. Is, is, it, a, is it a problem in Waikato? Well, yeah, I think it's a problem everywhere that um, I guess there's the good to have sort of um, things that councils sort of like to spend money on. It's good PR, all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think there does need to be a conversation about just getting back to core services um, or exactly a better question might be, what does the community actually want? Um, I don't think they're often asked. It's just, um, you know, creating work for themselves and sort of growing their, their footprint, which just seems to happen constantly. And then it's very hard to sort of shrink that, um, that footprint after you've already um, sort of expanded into other areas. So, yeah, I think just what what are the core services that that need to be provided or that the community expects, and and just really focus on those and do them properly because that's often what's forgotten in all this. You know, the the roads are still not in good condition in a lot of areas, and and you know the rubbish, the the basic services um, are just not up to scratch, and that's that's what ratepayers should expect. I, I completely agree. Out here, we've had similar issues. You know, councils can't afford to repair bridges and all, cutting off, actually, in some places, cutting off uh, farms in an area, Southland, that produces 15% uh, of the nation's GDP, export receipts. And uh, But yeah, we have money for everything else. We have money for cycle lanes, bike lanes, because, hey, let's save the world. Let's save the climate. Let's plant mm. one more pine tree, one more cycle lane. It is just unbelievable what we've come to as a country. Yeah, well, the, the climate policy definitely does have quite an influence. Um, mm. Yeah, there, there's a lot of money that, that is spent on, um, I guess, trying to reduce emissions. And it's a lot more than, than the sort of the number that is, or any numbers that you'll see out there. It's all the little things that they do. They pay extra for the buses to, to have lower emissions. They'll um, use different products. They'll, um, yeah, just promote more cycle lanes or, or whatever. So, yeah, that... Um, that issue, I think, is massive, and I think 
And another big part of what Democracy NZ is trying to achieve is, is actually having a serious conversation about climate change. I know no one else is really um, too interested in doing that because of the, the potential media pushback or, or um, you know, how you might be perceived. But, you know, like, it's not... You, the world isn't going to hell in a handbasket. Um, there's no real evidence of that. Uh, we've adapted to the last one degree of warming uh, remarkably well. Humans are, are thriving by every measure, really. Um, population's growing, economies are growing, health is improving. Um, so the, this idea that for some reason, if the world continues to very gradually warm, everything's going to... Um, you know, turn into some sort of disaster is is just not plausible. So I think we just need to to have a genuine conversation about that and stop making panicked decisions around um, a lot of these policies. You know, we can just keep doing our thing, keep doing what makes sense economically, and without hurting our economy. And in time, technology will improve. Um, our understanding of the science will improve, and and we can make. Um, the appropriate decision at the time. But certainly at the moment, there's enough questions there around um, climate science and, and how accurate it is that this idea of just spending billions upon billions of dollars trying to solve something that we may not have any influence on whatsoever is, is just absolutely ludicrous to me. And I don't know why so many people are going along with it. It's yeah, it's it's really concerning stuff as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's it's heartening to hear your um your output tonight, uh, Steve, uh, because no one else is willing to say the stuff that you have just said. It's it's all very much uh, you know standoffish. Don't talk about it. I, your leader was on RCR earlier in the week, or late last week, and he was very um, passionate and sincere with all his answers, as you have been. Uh, I note Democracy New Zealand is, is slowly rolling out candidates around the the electorates of the country. Is it the intention that you stand in every electorate? Is that the plan? No, that's not the intention. Um, I believe uh, around 20 candidates is the optimum. Um, and, yeah, we're really making a, a, a big push to get Matt King elected in Northland. I think that that's a great opportunity. And if he gets over the line there, um, he's going to bring a couple of other candidates in with him. Um, but I think we've got a real opportunity to get to the 5% too. And I know that's a big ask for a new party. We're only a, we're only a number of months old at the end of the day, but we are picking up momentum. Uh, more and more people are hearing our message and, and liking what we've got to say. So our, our real task is to get out there in front of as many people as possible and and give them a genuine opportunity or a, a genuine chance for, for a different direction at um, the next election. So I believe there's more than 5% of politically homeless people out there at the moment that, that want a genuine change. Um, so, yeah, if we do our job right, I believe um, there's a very good chance that we can get over the line with 5% as well. Excellent. That was that was really good to hear, Steve. And we appreciate uh, your wading into topics which not a lot of the mainstream uh, politicians would cover. So thank you so much for your time today. And uh, Ton and I wish you all the very best. Ian, thanks a lot. And, and I really appreciate the work you guys too as well as far as getting um, alternative views out there and opening up discussions that 
that yeah other media aren't really willing to have so um yeah really appreciate my time on here look forward Perhaps, to having Steve. you back sometime go well definitely thanks a lot jaspreet popperai and don nicholson with greenwashed on rcr reality check radio and with that we come to the end of the show this was your reality check for the week with the greenwashed team me jaspreet and my co-host Don Nicholson. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you for the feedbacks that keep coming in. If you need a reminder, our text number is 2057 and our email is inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. We'll see you again soon. Goodbye. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. and i think we have lost the art of conversation with rcr i just hope that people can learn that we can all be different we can have our own opinions have our own views and have those conversations in a respectful way because respect needs to be given and needs to be earned and i think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives ages opinions can have a platform and we can work and talk together and so that's what i hope we get to achieve with rcr just independent thought alternative thought and i i expect that i will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as i've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say whatever side you're on and the listener the consumer with that information can make of it what they will that is the mission it's a good mission